Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Good evening, folks. My name is Sam. I'm going to be the moderator tonight for tonight's debate, and I'm pumped to have a front row seat to this anticipated debate. Um, so the title of the the title of tonight's debate will be the Great Ancestry Debate. Their debate. The question is: Do genetics support the universal or the separate ancestry? So Grayson, he will be defending universal ancestry. And Brother Donnie will be defending separate ancestry, also known as biblical creation. The format will be simple. <clears throat> Each side will be given um, about 10 minutes. And that 10 minutes will include a brief introduction, opening statements, a few of the best lines of evidence that we will be debating tonight. Uh, that might be the time to slip in a few ad homs if you're going to use those, because after that, uh, they won't be allowed. <laughs> The discussion will be approximately uh, 60 to 70 minutes, a free-flowing conversation that will hopefully cover at least a few of those different points that we're going to be talking about tonight. After, after the discussion, we're going to have about five minutes of closings each, um, So that and then we're going to follow that up with about 30 minutes or so of question and answer. So please tag me at Redefine Living, just one word, and I'll be looking for it in the chat. Um, so before we begin, I'd like to mention that there are many upcoming events, you guys, so please check them out. There are also many ways that you guys can support this channel, um, not only financially, although financially is welcome, but you can just hit that thumbs up or share this around, and that really helps the algorithm. And so um, if you guys haven't subscribed already, then do that now and hit that notification bell so you guys can be noti notified every time one of these important debates comes up. So, yeah, so that's it, you guys. Enough for me. Um, so who's who's going to be going first? Yeah. All right. Me. So, Brother Donnie, I'll start your 10 minutes now. Grayson, I think it's. Yeah, so I'll go, go first here. Grayson. I don't okay. have a ton to say. I think I've largely made my case over the last two debates. If you guys haven't checked those out, uh, my name is Grayson. Like I said, I've been here, done two debates so far on universal ancestry, evolution, and brought up genetics as my preferred line of evidence. I think that uh, you can easily see universal ancestry when you look at genetics. What you have to do is compare the uh, homologous DNA sequences. So you just look at different species. They form nested hierarchies uh, of homologous DNA sequences. I mean, that alone, to me, proves universal common ancestry. It's pretty easy to recognize. But there are, um, you know, common creationist arguments of this, um, like um, saying that they would expect nested hierarchies in a creation model uh, with common design instead of common ancestry. Um, that, I would just say, is ahistorical. Uh, we've had creationists for a very, very long time. Um, at least 2,000 years, right? Much more, but we'll just deal with Christianity for the moment. Um, and when Carolus Linnaeus first came out with um, 
with his theory of showing that all of these different branches of life are connected in these nested hierarchies, he had no explanation for it. Nothing that fit in his creationist worldview could explain why this would be the case. And he actually challenged all the scientists of the day to ex explain this, uh, explain why this is happening. These observations do not make sense in my creationist worldview. And it didn't make sense to any of the scientists of the day either until 1859 with the theory of evolution. And then all of a sudden, the nested hierarchical pattern makes sense. And that was before DNA. Now, since the 1950s, when DNA sequencing, we see that this same kind of nested hierarchical pattern uh, is reflected in the genomes of creatures as well. So um, tonight, we're going to be discussing several uh, subtopics under this category of genetics uh, and ancestry. Um, so we're going to be discussing specifically um, uh, junk DNA, um, because these uh, homologous sequences in DNA, um, in under a common design, we would, the creationists might say that they would expect that for, you know, uh, humans and a chimp have a lot of similarities between the two organisms. So we might expect that their genomes might be similar to each other. Um, but when you look at, um, well, first of all, I want to say that that kind of logic is not really universally applicable. For example, a goldfish is more genetically similar to a human than it is to a shark, which is another kind of fish. So right away, you start getting issues with the common design argument. But um, especially with junk DNA, right? If, if we talk about junk DNA, which has no determined function, there should be no reason why we would observe nested hierarchies of DNA sequence homologies there. Um, so we're going to get into that. Uh, Donnie's going to say there is no junk DNA. Uh, we're going to get to the bottom of it because if there is, evolution is true. We see that universal common ancestry. We see it reflected in the, in the DNA in the junk DNA. Okay, we'll get to that. We're also going to be talking about um, some of the creationist um, side of things, not that the genetics using to prove universal ancestry, but we're going to talk about genetics and separate ancestry. Donnie's going to talk about molecular clocks, uh, mitochondrium, mitochondrial uh, Eve, and Y chromosome Adam, and we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of all of these substitution rates, mutation rates, all that, um, and we're going to talk about genetic entropy. We touched on it a little bit last time, um, but we're going to, you know, touch on that again briefly, and then uh, finally we'll close out with... Um, if there's enough time for it, my favorite uh, personal prediction of evolution, I think it's the coolest thing, uh, the chromosome two fusion, um, which definitely happened. We'll get to the evidence for why that is the case um, as it comes up. But um, we clearly see the results that chromosome two is a result of fusion of two uh, chromosomes that are present in chimpanzees. Um, so we'll get to that. I'll, I'll lay out each of these cases more uh, in depth as we get to those points in the discussion. But for this introduction, I didn't want to overload people with topics. Um, I just wanted to kind of provide a roadmap for the kinds of things that we'll be talking about. Um, but yeah, I'm thoroughly of the side that genetics easily proves uh, universal common ancestry. Like I said, it's just the sequence homologies. Um, but I am very interested in each of these subtopics as well, because I've heard Donnie and other creationists um, speak on these topics before, and there are things that I would like to clear up 
um, discussions I want to have about each of these topics as it pertains to the overall picture of universal common ancestry. So thanks. All right. <clears throat> thanks. So that was, uh, you had about five minutes left. We'll throw that into the question and answer. And so, Donnie, we're going to start your time on your first word. <clears throat> okay. Thank you. Don't start it on this first oh. word, but let me uh, <laughs> let me get the screen share up. And Doki Doki in the chat said, have we uh, done another accidental merging of the intro and opening statements? No, this time was intentional. So uh, before I get to my opening statement, what Grayson and I want to do is give everybody as much discussion as possible. Okay, we want to be as comprehensive as possible in this debate. And so rather than having long openings, long rounds of rebuttals, which we've done so many times in the past, we're going to make this more of a free-flowing discussion on each topic. And in terms of the opening statements, we're just laying down the foundation. So with that, um, here we go. Start my timer and I will go full screen. And let's have some fun. So the great ancestry debate, Donnie versus Grace. And this is my debate, number 100, at least in terms of formal debates. So I'm extra excited for this one. I've wanted to get uh, number 100 in there for a month now. So uh, the title, Does Genetics Support Universal or Common Ancestry? Last month, we debated common uh, ancestry in general, universal or uh, separate ancestry. And we discussed all aspects of the ancestry debate. So that included morphology, anatomy, but the fossil record. But with this debate, we're just focusing on genetics primarily as the, as the thesis. So universal or separate ancestry. And this verse right here, guys, tells us clearly that man was created separately from any other form of life. And this includes your great apes. Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And this verse here in Genesis 2, 21 to 22. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. This teaches that Eve... The mother of us all was also created separate from any other form of life. These verses have some very significant scientific implications. So the Bible claims to be the history book of the universe. The Bible teaches special creation and separate ancestry. I've, I've written numerous books on this specific topic. Grayson here has specifically... <laughs> Um, read my special creation book. I've got it over there to my right. And so I'm really looking forward to this discussion because he's, he's well studied on, on these issues. So this will be, uh, be edifying for the audience. Now, since, the, the, since again, the Bible claims to be the history book of the universe, we should be able to examine its claims to modern scientific data. And it turns out that the scientific data overwhelmingly confirms the Bible's statements on ancestry. I am defending the biblical model of ancestry tonight, which is separate ancestry or independent origins. I am going to argue that humans are a special creation. And this initial creation with Adam and Eve here, as we read in these opening verses, 
was separate from other forms of life, such as chimpanzees, monkeys, whales, and strawberries. It is Grayson who will be arguing tonight for universal common ancestry, where he would indeed say that humans, chimpanzees, monkeys, whales, and strawberries are related. That is why he is arguing for universal common ancestry, which makes his burden of proof tonight to demonstrate this scientifically. Now, if I can demonstrate that humans are not related to the great apes, then this means they definitely are not related to whales and plants. And by demonstrating this, I meet my burden of proof. But again, for Grayson to meet his burden of proof for tonight's debate, he needs to demonstrate that all life is related. And this includes dogs and apples. So here on the on the slide, you'll see an image of the separate ancestry model. This is a basic image where we have humans separate from your great apes. Now, the evolutionists would look to humans and according to, to taxonomy, which according to my notes, uh, Grayson spent his opening on with uh, Linnaeus, uh, nested hierarchies in anatomy, physiology, morphology, and genetics. Um, if you think of taxonomy, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, well, we would say, the, the evolutionists would say that humans are, are um, human great apes. And then your gorillas, your chimpanzees, orangutans, your strolopithecine-like ancestors, they are non-human great apes. But we would draw a line right here. As you can see, you got Homo sapiens starting with Adam and Eve and living humans today with your side branches, okay? Floresiensis, Naledi, Denisovans, Neanderthal, and Erectus. And we can demonstrate this. We can demonstrate that there is a line in ancestry that we have boundaries, especially in terms of genetics, by looking to the lines of evidence that I am going to be using tonight and that we are going to be discussing tonight. That includes genetic uh, entropy, which is the accumulation of deleterious mutations in populations over time. I'm going to be looking to um, evidence for Y chromosome Noah, mitochondrial Eve, and of course, DNA function. Now why DNA function is so important is because the evolutionary community or the evolutionist model and the creation model have two very different explanations in terms of the origin of the majority of our DNA differences. So evolutionists would look to mutations as essentially being the source for nearly all genetic variation, okay? Especially in your uh, autosomal nuclear DNA. But the creationists, we look to what's called created heterozygosity, that God would have front-loaded the original created kinds, and of course, Adam and Eve, with pre-existing DNA variation. And these DNA elements, this DNA diversity would be beneficial and functional. And I have said many times before in the past that if you have heterozygous ancestors, an almost limitless assortment of combinations of chromosomes, genes, and traits are feasible. And what you can do is go back to basic genetics and alleles. And what you have is uh, uppercase A, lowercase A, uppercase B, lowercase B. This is what is referred to as heterozygosity, a state of DNA diversity. Now, if you do this or apply this to the millions of DNA positions in, in the genome, let's say in millions of DNA positions in the genome, and then you also have recombination and gene conversion where you can shuffle up these DNA differences every single generation, you will achieve new varieties of combinations of traits quickly. Novel morphologies can come about with, without the increase in true phenotypic complexity, which is what the evolutionist requires. And this is because according to this model, the DNA differences are built in and therefore they are front-loaded. So right here is a, uh, a universal tree 
We have the common ancestor at the um, base of the tree there. And from there, you have fish, amphibians, marsupials, chimpanzees, humans, all life related. This is the universal tree of life right here. Another example, uh, the tree of life. We are all related to everything. So this is what the universal common ancestry proponent would, would say. So, of course, when it comes to evolution, if by evolution you mean dogs and wolves are related, then Grayson, we're going to have nothing to argue about. But if by evolution you mean dogs, wolves, banana plants, and whales are related, then of course we're going to have a major problem there. So right here we have um, an example of what I was talking about earlier. We have two copies of the same gene that would make you homozygous. That wouldn't make much sense of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, what would make sense both theologically and scientifically is that God would have created Adam and Eve heterozygous. So here on the left, scenario one, we see DNA copies are different. That's a heterozygous state, and that makes sense, okay? In my last three minutes, I want to briefly, at least, uh, I'll probably only have time to cover one of these trees. And then in our discussion, I'll go over uh, the second tree. So this is a tree specifically of all the major Y chromosome families in the world. And this was created specifically by Dr. Robert Carter, okay? There's history on this tree, guys. And looking at this tree, what do we see? Well, we see an, an explosion. We see a starburst pattern. Okay, we also see this um, in the mitochondrial tree is, is this starburst pattern. And these branches, they reflect random mutations in people over time. Okay, Noah would be somewhere in the, in the middle here of the tree. Now, this tree only represents a few hundred mutations with a little more, let's say over 400 in your longest branches. Now we can actually measure mutation rates. We can use something uh, that is called the empirical or the pedigree method. And what they can do and what they've done is they can sequence the entirety of the genomes of, of two parents and their, their child. And by doing this, they can count up or measure the number of mutations or differences that the child has that the parents don't have. And on the Y chromosome, it's at least one mutation per generation, but it's actually more like three when you consider a high quality sequencing data. Okay, but either way, one or three, it's, it's too much and it's too fast for the evolutionary model. Okay, in the mitochondrial DNA, we'll talk about that later, the mutation rate's about 0.5 per generation or one every other generation, which again is too fast for the evolutionary model. Okay, so in my last minute here, I want to point out that since the mutation rate is at least one per generation in the Y chromosome, and again, probably more like three when we consider high quality data, this is only a few hundred generations worth of time. It's incredibly easy to fit this number of mutations with a fast mutation rate in just 4,500 years. The amount of genetic variation that we see on the Y chromosome can easily fit within the biblical timescale. And this is perfectly consistent with separate ancestry. As a matter of fact, we couldn't ask for better evidence for separate ancestry. So with that, that is exactly 10 minutes. So I'm going to wind down there. And that's just kind of laying out the foundation. I've got plenty of more information and details there, but I'm going to save that for the discussion here. Thank you so much. All right, great. So those are the openings. And so now we're, we're going to take about 60 or 70 minutes or so. Um, I guess, do you guys want me to give you just an update every 15 minutes or so to see if you want to change topics? Yeah, yeah, that's and a good idea. And that way we are touching on every single topic and time flies by when you're having a discussion. So let's okay. say yeah, every every 15 minutes and then that'll give us 
an idea right. into into when we can move on. All right. So so Grayson, you're the guest here. So why don't you find a a a point that you think is your best line of evidence or a refute for something that Donnie said and take if you can maybe 30 seconds to kind of explain it and then uh yeah we'll just jump right in okay so for starters i want to say that that last chart it only has that starburst radial pattern because it's an unrooted tree i mean if you were going to look at this in in regards to a, a molecular clock you need to root that tree it would look totally different the length of of lines there is representative of the the time uh involved but neither here nor there um I think molecular clocks is a good place to start this conversation. Well, real quick, Grayson. Yeah. What I'm going to do is I'm writing down your points. Yeah. So obviously we don't want any slapping and running. So take your time. So that's point one. What I'll do is I'll I'll dress them all when you're done. Yeah. Okay. Rather than interrupting you. Okay. So that's one. So I'll, I'll make sure. Yeah. I'm gonna I, I, I didn't know that we were going to be talking about uh, created heterozygosity, but my only question there is uh, where do you get the alleles um, if there's more than four alleles for a given trait? Right. With heterozygosity, every everybody has two alleles per person. So Adam and Eve, that's four alleles. So there are lots of human traits where right now in the population, there are more than four alleles for this trait. That could not be the result of created heterozygosity. Right. So those are my first two points. OK, I appreciate it, Grayson. So let me share screen again on the phylogenetic tree. So you said that this is an unrooted tree and it needs to be rooted. See, an unrooted tree, this is an unrooted tree, but an unrooted tree in this context, especially as it applies to genetic variation, in this specific case, the Y chromosome. This is the mitochondrial DNA. An unrooted tree gives us the most natural reading of the data because the evolutionists, they have an assumption that, you know, the last... Um, common ancestor or in terms of their, you know, ape to man ancestry is, is at a certain spot. And then we as biblical creationists, we can have our own assumptions. But if we manifest DNA variation in the form of an unrooted tree, what we get is a natural reflection of the data. And so therefore we can look at the patterns without having either the evolutionist or the creationist assumptions built in. Okay. So can the branches in there. Go, go ahead. Okay, so if you're going to look at this tree and you're just going to make the intuitive assumption based on the data, you would think that the ancestor is at the middle of that starburst pattern. But what this tree is actually showing is the ancestor is further out along that longest branch. And so like if you were going to arrange this like a family tree, like how most people would think about this stuff, the, the oldest ancestor is not the center of that starburst pattern. That's not like once, once you root this tree and it looks like a, and like a family tree, like everyone's familiar with, that's not where the ancestor is at. That's why this is not intuitive. Okay. Well, I'll address, I'll address that too. I'll address them in turn. Okay. So again, what we have here in terms of the pattern in terms of the number of DNA differences, okay? Because firstly, the branches in the tree, Grayson, they have mutations that we, we can count those up, okay? This is uh, DNA data that you can get and you can represent this tree yourself. You can do this yourself. And we know which mutation led to each branch as a matter of fact, okay? So the point is the pattern, the variation, the number of mutations is easy to explain in the biblical time frame. There's not thousands of mutations here in the tree 
or in the mitochondrial DNA tree. We're only talking about a few DNA differences, okay, in both the mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome DNA compartments, and therefore only a few hundred generations. Now, why it's important, the starburst pattern, okay, that, that you're contesting, is essentially because what we have is evidence for a rapidly growing population, okay? Accelerated population growth, essentially. And because it's an explosion from the center point, we may not know exactly where the ancestor is, but because this is evidence for a rapidly growing population, the ancestor therefore has to be somewhere in the center because you have to have a starting point for where the population is now expanding from. Okay, so that's the point. But I would argue, and then I'll let you, actually, I wanna answer your heterozygosity argument. I would argue it's even more difficult to place a, a point, a direct point in terms of where and who the ancestor is, is because of the branches themselves. So Grayson, if you were to look, let's say, uh, let's use the mitochondrial DNA. If you if were you to look it, at though, the- You can put it at one point. If you just root the tree, the same data, you can easily see the point that would be the root. Right, but you're rooting it based on an evolutionary assumption, okay? I would be rooting it based on a creationist assumption. You wouldn't therefore be getting a natural reading of the data. And why, here's, here's my main argument why I believe it's erroneous to root it as an evolutionist especially, is because of the differing size branches, okay? So take the most common uh, haplogroup in Europe right here, HVR. Okay, this is the mitochondrial DNA tree for the audience sake, not the, the Y chromosome. Well, here's the thing. These people, they go back to a common female ancestor. And if all these people represented by these branches come from a common ancestor in the past, which they do, because this is just a natural representation of the DNA variation in the mitochondrial chromosome, okay? And the branch lengths equal the number of mutations, which we know is a fact, there's no dispute there, then that means in the same amount of time, the same family have picked up twice as many mutations as their closest living relatives. You have differing size branches. You have people living together, people living at the same time that are picking up, some of them more than two times the amount of mutations than their closest living relatives. So that means you can't look at the branches and determine where exactly that root is. You also can't make evolutionary assumptions in terms of when we apparently split from a common ancestor with the chimpanzee. You can't make those types of assumptions and determinations because of the differing sized branches. That means mutation rates are variable. Mutation rates are variable among living people and people groups. Uh, before I go on, I don't want to say too many points. I still, I've still got your heterozygosity um, objection noted, but I'll address that after. You, you could take some time to address what I said there. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's not really much evidence that different types of people, like like within each of these like groups, like we would expect, if if what you're saying is accurate, that people of the L zero uh, haplogroup the longest line on this chart here, we would expect to find experimentally that their mitochondria have a faster mutation rate than people of the other uh, haplogroups. And that's not what we see, so. Okay, so um, I would say you're just wrong on that because firstly here, um, 
especially for the audience sake, I know you're familiar with this. I talk about it in my book here. Estimates of the mutation rate with a non-phylogenetic approach, right? The pedigree analysis that I was talking about earlier is approximately 10, 10-fold higher than phylogenetically derived rates. So if you were to look to the evolutionary phylogenetic method rather than the pedigree method, they are admitting here in the secular literature, this is 2022, that your pedigree rates, your observed rates are ten time, at least 10 times higher than phylogenetically derived. I rates. agree with that. Right. But here's the problem is where you're saying that we would need evidence for faster mutation rates. Firstly, the DNA data doesn't lie. We can see that with the branches. These people, these females here specifically, they go back to a common ancestor. Okay. You can see that with the branches where they go back to. That's the whole the, the point of the branching pattern. Okay. You have differing size branches, which means you have people who have more mutations, picking up more mutations than their cousins in the same amount of time. That's what these branches indicate. Okay. That's the evidence right there. But we have papers here. This is one from 2022. Notice this two families had genetic drivers of germline hypermutation with fathers carrying damaging genetic variation in DNA repair genes. So we have real-time evidence. We have empirical evidence. This is 2022, where we have certain peoples that are hypermutating. In this specific case, it's because they have uh, deleterious mutations, damaging mutations in important DNA repair genes. That means you're going to accumulate more mutations because these uh, DNA repair enzymes essentially work to fix mutations as they come in. Well, if these are broken, then obviously more mutations are going to get through. More mutations are going to be passed on in, in the germ cell right. line. Okay, but the the point is that you have to demonstrate that these faster mutation rates are specific to these mitochondrial haplogroups, which is not demonstrated. I'm not arguing that families or individuals cannot be hypermutating and that mutation rates can vary on individuals and these kinds of things. What I'm saying is that mutation rates are not shown to be variable between different haplogroups for mitochondria or Y chromosome haplogroups. That is something that we just don't see demonstrated in the data. I mean, well, Grayson, <laughs> are you disputing the fact that we have, here's just one haplogroup in Europe, the HVR. Are you disputing the fact that we have differing size branches? The branches are reflecting what? Time. Mutations. You know, they're reflecting time. And here's here's what I'll say. You can do this. This can be empirically measured. You can find people in all over the world that have these different haplogroups. And we can look at their pedigree at his generation to generation mutation rate in their mitochondria. And we'll see that it's not dependent on their haplogroup. Okay. So you're assuming that the branch lengths are a an indicator of exact time now of course the the more we move away to the center yes it is indicative of time but we know that if you can pick up more mutations in the same amount of time then you can't make an exact determination in terms of the branch length and correlate that to a specific time what we see overall in terms of the pattern but i did want to go to this paper here notice this we also found that the overall point mutation rate is significantly higher. Notice this, Grayson. Significantly higher, and I'll even do it in italics, in Africans than in Europeans in this specific region studied, HBB. Okay? Over in here- that specific region. Well, of course, yeah. S some regions within the genome 
are going to be more mutable than others. But in this specific region, because we've made predictions on people groups whose mutation rates are not yet known. For example, as you know, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, he looked to the Khoisan peoples. Their mutation rate is not yet known, okay? So he made a future testable prediction based on what we're talking about here, based on the data. And he said, I predict that they're gonna mutate you know, th this many times faster than some of your non-African people groups. That's a testable prediction on paper. So once we actually get their DNA and we can test their mutation rate, we can either prove that testable prediction to be false or true. Now, according to what you're saying, you know, would you be willing to make a testable prediction based on the mutation rate in people groups who, who we've yet to measure? Would you be willing to, you know, make a prediction like that? Yeah, I mean, that we can measure mitochondrial mutation rates for any people group, you know, we're going to get same ballpark. It's not like <laughs> the L naught in your prediction, the L zero haplogroup has to have the highest mutation rate in the mitochondria. That, that would be the prediction of the creationist model. But again, mutation rates are not, uh, now he, I would say they're constantly fast. We have a fast mutation rate in the Y chromosome, you know, for sake of argument, we'll say one. But uh, what's up for debate is it's more like three when we look at high sequencing data, okay? In the mitochondrial DNA, for sake of argument, we could say 0.1 per generation. It actually looks like it's as high as 0.5, but nonetheless, still high in both DNA compartments. Now, if we have, and we'll keep rocking this topic till the 15-minute mark, but if we have low variation in both the uh, mitochondrial phylogeny, Y chromosome phylogeny, Okay, low variation. There's only a few differences. For example, here's a paper here. I wonder if you, you've read it um, right here. Mitochondrial diversity within modern human populations. So this was um, published in a secular journal, Dr. Rob Carter and Dr. John Sanford, specifically Dr. Carter's name is on here. And what they did is they, they took worldwide mitochondrial DNA using a database and they were able to derive an eve consensus sequence okay you can read through the paper yourself and wait one second how could you do an eve consensus sequence if eve was created with with created heterozygosity how could there be a consensus sequence with created heterozygosity well just to make sure you understand the model created heterozygosity would apply to which dna compartments like anything that you have Anything that you can be heterozygous for. Right. So it goes back to basic genetics, right? Capital A, lowercase a, capital B, lowercase b. You do this to, let's say, millions of positions within the genome. Okay. That means you essentially have an unlimited range of uh, chromosomal combinations and just essentially variation. That's your autosomal DNA. Okay. Your biparentally inherited DNA. But your mitochondrial DNA and your Y chromosome, Y chromosome is nuclear DNA, but the Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA compartments, are those uniparentally inherited or biparentally? Yeah, okay, I see where you're coming from. They're uniparentally inherited, um, so you want to be heterozygous at those points. Um, I would just say, you know, what about when you have positions where 51% uh, of the population has this gene letter, and 49% have another one. I mean, what's the consensus sequence on that 51%? I mean, well, it's, it seems like shaky reasoning. Well, no, it, it's, not, it's not shaky. 
you know, this is, for example, this is from the, the um, nucleic acids research. You know, this was in, it, it's a rock solid paper and it's pretty basic on what he did in terms of finding a consensus sequence. Grayson, okay, let's say you have, um, let's say you handed out a document to a hundred different people and then you ask them to copy it manually. Well, what we would find is mistakes in every copy written out by each person. Okay, so what you and I could do hypothetically is go through all of these copies, find the rare deviants, and then by removing them, we can find out what the original sequence was prior to the mistakes. And that's exactly what they did here. You can read the paper for yourself. Again, it's not in a creationist journal or anything like that. Here's the results. And what they found, Grayson, was that roughly 21 mitochondrial DNA mutations per person exist. What that means is you and I, we're approximately 21 mutations removed from the Eve consensus sequence. Okay, well, here's the thing. If the mitochondrial DNA is variable within people in terms of the mutation rate, but the mutation rate in the uh, mitochondrial DNA specifically is fast, 0.1 to 0.5 per generation, but we're only separated by on average 21 mutations, DNA differences. That's trivial. That's trivial. My question to you is, how do you get 200,000 years out of this genetic variation? If this is only on average, roughly 21 mitochondrial DNA mutations per person removed from the consensus sequence. Uh, go ahead. Hold on. Okay. Before, oh, yeah. before, First of all, real, real quick, before you, sorry to interrupt. I don't want to interrupt. It's been a great conversation, but we're a bit past the 15 minute mark. So if you guys want to move on or stay here, I'm just... Okay, well, something does need to be addressed. First of all, there is not any proof that people can have variable, variable mitochondrial mutation rates. That hasn't been demonstrated. It's um, right there in the tree. I feel like yeah, you're just it, repeating it's not talking in the tree points. again. Like that's not it measuring the, the tree. Rate. That's measuring the differences, right? Yeah, but it's representing. It's represented on an unrooted phylogenetic yeah, tree. Exactly. And so it's the branches unrooted. are. But wait, wait, the branches are allowed to naturally spread out. The, and the, all this is the is center of that tree is not where it's we're not talking about the center we're just talking about your different haplogroups and the fact that within those haplogroups you have differing size branches well if the branches reflect mutations over time then that means if you have a longer branch and then a couple shorter branches in the same amount of time that means you have people picking up more mutations than other people in the same amount of time yeah, that means it that all means matters rates where are you're variable. starting from, right? If no, you start from no. the middle, then one branch seems longer than the other. If you start from a different area, all the branches are the same length. And the mitochondrial rate mutation rate is the same for all branches. It depends on where you start. That's why this graphic is worthless because it's not really well, it's, it's not worthless. So anyways, the main thing that I wanted to move to was you're using the generation to generation pedigree mutation rate rather than using the substitution rate that's empirically found out. Well, okay? wait, 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 hey, Grayson, before you move on, I, I feel like you didn't answer the question. Keep the, first, okay, we're just going to have to agree to disagree, I guess. Whether it's rooted or unrooted, it's still a representation of worldwide mitochondrial DNA. Okay, in that paper yes. uh, by Dr. Rob Carter and Dr. John Sanford, published in a secular journal, where they discovered the Eve consensus sequence, which again, as I explained, is not difficult to find at all. What did they find? They found that the mutation rate is fast and they found that on average, 
we differ by the Eve consensus sequence by only, you know, 20 to 25 mutations. That's incredibly low. And so that fits perfectly within the biblical time scale. But you want to take this tree, the variation present in this tree, whether it's rooted or unrooted, it's the same variation, okay? How do you take that back 200,000 years? That's a long time for such low variation. Okay, go. Are you saying because the pedigree versus... Yeah, because your mutation rate is way faster than the rate that you should be using because that you can't use the per generation per generation like mutation rate like how many mutations occur in me versus my parents versus my grandparents that rate is can, cannot be used because 99.99% of those mutations are going to be lost due to genetic drift so it doesn't make sense right you're saying that there are these um, you know, 21 differences or whatever, but you can't use the per generation rate to calculate how many generations since there were no differences, because you can easily go back in time. Like ancient DNA is an entire field of science emerging in the early 2010s. We have ancient DNA. We have ancient mitochondrial DNA. We can go back and look at them. And it's not like they they fit these predictions the the amount of differences between our mitochondrial dna and the mitochondrial dna of ancient dna that we've found has you know you would expect it to have somewhere between the different like so, somewhere less than the 21 differences right but that's not what we observe like the number of differences predicted by the generational rate versus the amount of differences that we actually uh, observe like when we dig these people out of the ground and get their dna does not match. It matches the substitution rate. Okay. So a few points there. Again, if the mutation rates are variable and we can see here, okay, 2022, two families had genetic drivers of germline hypermutation. We can see this today through genetic sequencing studies. Okay. And what they conclude is that environmental exposures including ionizing radiation can actually influence. So there's a number of influencers in terms of the mutation rate, how many mutations are transmitted to offspring. Okay, so we have real-time evidence for hypermutation. We also have real-time evidence here. Okay, this is another paper from 2022. We have specific regions within the genome where it's significantly higher in Africans than in Europeans, okay? So you have to say, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, your phylogenetic rate is more accurate because essentially the reason why we have such low variation, few DNA differences in, in the mitochondrial chromosome is because although the uh, per generation mutation rate is fast, okay, most of those are going to be lost over time and are never actually fixed. So fixed just means get stuck in place. And so it's the fixation rate or substitution rate that we should be looking at. And you're arguing, and I just want to represent your argument accurately, you're arguing that the fixation rate or substitution rate, that's a lot slower than the observed mutation rate. Yeah, because 99.9% .9 of the mutations that occur from each generation to the next generation are going to be lost very quickly. When we actually are measuring the differences between two groups, the genetic differences that we're measuring are the genetic substitutions. That's why we have to use the substitution rate because we're measuring the differences in the substitutions. Okay, so here's my response, okay? A few problems. 
is your substitution rate is making a couple assumptions, okay? Firstly, it mostly assumes, I'm saying mostly because I know there are a couple examples of islands like the Canary Islands where they've done uh, mutation rate tests, okay? To basically test the observed mutation rate with the long-term substitution rate or the accumulation rate. Okay, but most of the times that you read these papers, even in the Canary paper that Dr. Dancer and Cardinal likes to cite, they admit five or six times that they are assuming humans and chimpanzees did split from a common ancestor about seven, seven million years ago. Okay. So in order to get your long-term substitution rate, your long-term accumulation rate, is you have to look at the DNA differences that let's say separate humans and chimpanzees. Okay. Assume that we split from a common ancestor roughly 7 million years ago. Okay. And then considering those DNA differences that separate us, well, you know, now you're going to have a really slow accumulation rate. You don't have to do that. I know you're going to look to the Canary Islands paper and there's uh, been I mean, a few can, other. You can look to any, uh, even within like the last couple hundred years, or you can, you can calibrate your substitution rate based on whatever data you want. You can do it. That's uh, the key whatever. word, though. Calibrate. Yeah, yeah. Because so that's how you're getting the rate is you have to look at an ancient like DNA. And this could be ancient as in like 200 years ago. Like, no. Yeah, but you're, yeah, like, you're cal you OK, so if it's Roman. 200 years ago, you're calibrating with what? Archaeology? No, you could. OK, look, we agree when the Roman Empire existed, right? Right. You can go right. to an archaeological site of a okay. Roman like a Roman archaeological site, we dig up, we find a Roman, we test their DNA. We so 2,000 years ago? Yeah, yeah, like 2,000 years ago, right? This is well within the creationist time frame. We look at how many differences are between that Roman and then two of its ancestors from the modern day. And using that, we can calibrate our substitution rate. That makes a prediction. And then we can go dig up another And where did they do this? And where did huh? they do this? How? No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying, so, so your example... Dig yeah. up a dead Roman, get his DNA, yeah. find two ancestors or descendants from that specific, from uh, the Roman Empire yeah. that are living, yeah. and then see how many differences has, have accumulated, essentially. Yeah, and so, then we can see that it doesn't follow the... I'm, I'm asking you for, like, for example, Grayson, what I'm doing, notice this, paper after paper supporting everything that I'm saying. So can you cite I a paper where they've done this example? Supporting what you're saying. You're just showing papers saying that hypermutation exists. You're not showing any papers that show this mitochondrial haplogroup has a higher mutation rate. Like these are these are not supporting like evidences. Well, firstly, like, Grits, I don't want you to dodge my question. Can you present a paper? Okay, I'll give an supporting... example. I'll give an example. Okay, go so ahead. Jensen, uh, for whom many of these molecular clock arguments originate, he has done this, right? He His work has tried to match uh, like known historical migrations of humans um, to actual um, like DNA differences, right? right? Exactly what he's talking about with the DNA differences. And he's been trying to map human history onto the genome going all the way back to Noah, right? So according to his results, right? This is using the same math that Donnie is using for these mitochondrial Eve and all that stuff. The same math, it's the he's using the generational mutation rate. He gets that the R1B Y chromosome haplogroup was introduced into Italy in like the 1400s, right? But we know and we have found that members of the Roman Republic were R1B. 
Okay, so that that disqualifies, like that disproves it right there. Like we find ancient DNA evidence that does not fit these predictions. It it shows the substitution rate, not the pedigree rate. Okay, so my my response would be a couple things. Okay, firstly, we know that it sounds like you're just hand waving away the, the evidence that we have for hypermutation. We know it exists today, and we know it exists today for environmental reasons. Going back in time, especially during periods of time where you have harsher environmental conditions, especially if you're living closer to the equator, okay, like a lot of these African populations, and you have mutations to important DNA repair enzymes, which is a thing, notice here, our findings imply that defects in DNA repair genes can increase germline mutation rates. Okay, so when you look at, you know, ancient DNA, or even if you were to look to Neanderthals, Okay, one of the most inbred, if not the most inbred people group that has ever listed. Their, their rungs of homozygosity are massive. They got these stretches of identical letters in their DNA, and they existed in just the harshest of environmental conditions. And they existed isolated in small populations, which means you'd have rapid fixation of new mutations. So if you're looking to the fixation rate, a couple of things I want to say here, because you are making some good points. So I pre this is probably the most fun I've had on this specific topic, because most people usually just say they got to look into it and move on. So this is good. But the problem is, although many mutations are lost, okay, like, for example, if I were to pass on my Y chromosomal mutations to my sons. It's uniparentally inherited. It's passed on on the father's side. Or my wife were to pass on her mitochondrial DNA mutations to my daughter. And then my daughter were to not have children. And my sons were to not have children. Well, my question to you, are those mutations passed on then? Or do they basically die there? I mean, if, you, if your children didn't have any children, then they're done. They're not. Exactly. So, so my point is, we agree that a lot of mutations are lost. But here's the thing, a lot of mutations are not lost because there are countless people on the globe that are passing on 100 new mutations per person per generation in your autosomal DNA. They're passing on roughly three Y chromosomal mutations per generation, passing on roughly one every other generation in the mitochondrial DNA. So eventually there's an equilibrium point where one could say, and this seems to be uh, basic population genetics, that your observed mutation rate eventually equals a fixation rate. Because yes, many are lost, but many are not lost, and many are actually neutral. So the only ones that you're going to lose are the ones where, yeah, if there's no reproduction, there's no passing on of the mutations. Okay, but so if you have a mutation that's big enough in, let's say, the mitochondrial DNA or Y chromosome where it kills the organism, then yes, selection removes that individual and that mutation from the equation. But since most mutations are nearly neutral and they don't have a big enough effect to kill the individual, they do get passed on and they do spread and they eventually reach, reach fixation. Okay. So, so go ahead. How do you this way. Uh, so I think we would both agree, right, with genetic entropy. The odds of any one mutation, right? Every mutation has to either go to fixation or be erased, right? That's the ultimate fate for every mutation. Uh, unless that there's a pressure for heterozygosity or there's more mutations that happen at that spot, creating more alleles or whatever. But barring those two things, every single mutation either has to go completely to fixation, 100% of the population has it, or it has to die out. Those are the only two options. This is like basic... Uh, genetic like population genetics so if you're thinking about how many mutations do i have that are inherited 
from my great, 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 great grandfather or whatever. It's not going to be very many. Most of the mutations that happened in his generation are all died out already after this many generations. Most of my generations are going to be coming from my, most of my mutations are going to be coming from my if your great 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 grandparents are, are having kids yep. and then their kids are having kids and their kids are having multiple and it's this consistent passing on of mutations yeah then no you have a lot of mutations floating around okay Only but from the recent ancestors <laughs> are you saying at some point magically you go back thousands of years and now selection is just so effective that it's, no, it's not selection it's genetic drift Totally okay. different from selection. Right. Genetic drift, bottleneck, selection. There's a number of evolutionary No, no, no not, not bottleneck, not selection. It's genetic no, no, no. drift that wipes out 99.9% .9 of all the mutations. Right. But, but a lot of PhDs, they'll look to, like Dr. Dan Stern, Cardinal, Stefan Frello, who I've debated, they'll look to a variety of mechanisms that can reduce variation. Bottlenecks is one but of them. Sanford and Roop and Carter, the creationists, agree. I've read their paper. They say 99.9% .9 of all mutations are lost because of right. genetic drift. But again, as as most mutations are lost, there's still a lot of mutations that are not lost. Yeah. Because when you're consistently having children and there's a lot of mutations floating around a population that is, and this is where it brings me to population size. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. why I would say, I think this comes down to in our final minutes here before we move on, I don't want to bore the audience. We've been on this for a while. We can leave it up to the audience. Okay. First thing I want to say is I am arguing and we, you know, we can leave it up to the audience. Your differing size branches in your various haplogroups, whether it's the Y chromosome or the mitochondrial DNA, tells us empirically that mutation rates are variable. You could have some people picking up more mutations in, in the same amount of time than other people, than their cousins, okay? So right there, you can't now look at the branches and assume it's X amount of time. Because no, if you can pick up more mutations than another people group, or some people groups could be hypermutating for a number of reasons, maybe environment, depending on where you live on the earth. Again, that's an assumption that's a problem for the evolutionary molecular clock, okay? So, and then the last thing I wanna say, and then we'll, we'll um, move on from here, is when it comes to population size, okay? The biblical model would suggest that at creation, you have two people, Adam and Eve, and then you have rapid and exponential population growth. Then a couple thousand years later, you have a, a bottleneck, boom. Okay, so you have a bottleneck, reduces the population to eight. Noah, his wife, their three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives. From there, everybody else is descended from basically. Those are our ancestors, those three reproducing couples. What that means is you have eight people followed by rapid and exponential population growth, and they don't spread out around the globe until a few hundred years later at the Tower of Babel. What does that mean? You have rapid fixation of new mutations. So you have a faster fixation rate. So during those few hundred years before they spread out at Babel, what do you have? You have a fast mutation rate, you have a rapidly growing population that's basically isolated to a, a certain uh, area, geographic location on the globe. That's rapid fixation of new mutations. Then they spread out to all parts of the globe. That's where we find, uh, you know, allele frequency. Some are rare, some are not. If they're rare, then they're more recent. If they're common, they're probably created. Okay. You can also find geographically specific Y chromosomes. 
which is fascinating evidence for the, the Babel dispersal. But here's the last thing I want to say, and then you can respond. That means with only on average 21 mitochondrial mutations separating any two people from the Eve consensus sequence as well, me about 20 mutations from the Eve consensus sequence, that can almost be entirely explained in, in that first 500 years after the flood where you have rapid fixation and new mutations. So my point is, what's the most parsimonious uh, explanation given uh, in light of this data? Fast mutation rate, low variation, rapid fixation events after the flood? The biblical creation model. We have no problem with it. But you guys, you got to basically say that purifying selection you know, has been working overdrive. And the reason why we have such low variation that fits within the biblical time scale, but actually goes back 200,000 years to an out of Africa event, you know, it's because X, Y, Z. And then also I don't see any prediction. So I just find that it, it, the most parsimonious explanation is the separate ancestry model. And go ahead, uh, Grayson. Hold on. Hold, hold that thought. Grayson, don't lose your train of thought. Definitely want you to respond to that. Uh, just want to let you guys know we're a bit past the halfway mark. We're loving the conversation. We're uh, looking forward to round two. <laughs> uh, but I'm just letting you know that we are past the halfway mark at this point. So if we want to change the subject after you respond to this, Grayson, um, I suppose you can do that. Why don't we do this? We'll give Grayson the last word on this round. And then whatever the next round is, I'll get the last word on that one. Sounds good. Okay, okay. sure. Yeah, I'll just say real quick, um, you know, Nobody's arguing that hypermutation happens. Hypermutation definitely happens. It hasn't been shown to happen between large groups of people. That's what that chart was showing, not individuals, but groups of people. Um, you know, you can find one little location on the on the genome um, that, oh, this has a higher mutation rate in Africans and Europeans. But you don't see as a whole the Y chromosome, the mitochondria, the genome as a whole. You don't see vast differences in mutation rates between people, um, especially not in the mitochondria. This has never been observed. Um, so until it is observed, I'm just going to say, you know, where's the evidence? And finally, uh, we can make predictions using Jensen's model, using the molecular clocks of creationists. We can make predictions for what kind of ancient DNA we're going to dig up. And then when we go and dig up the ancient DNA, the whole field of ancient DNA, which, like I said, emerged in the 2010s. It's relatively recently, but we have a lot of material, like thousands of ancient genomes. They debunk this thoroughly. We see the mutations that they have in relation to the, uh, the consensus sequence that the creationists posit. We see that they don't fit their model. Ancient DNA debunks this. So um, for our next topic, I guess um, since we're kind of already at the halfway point and we kind of did discuss genetic entropy a bit in our well I, I will say this we we did agree if we have to go longer like if we got to up the conversation you know another 20 minutes we can do that too because there's a and that's okay. why we well, did i know that a lot of the ground that we covered in our last debate about genetic entropy I, I don't we don't need to necessarily rehash that unless you have certain points my points on genetic entropy are the same as in our last debate so i would encourage people to go and watch that if you have anything different maybe we could just touch on it briefly or move on to junk dna well, let me say calling? this. Let me say this because I said I'd give you the last word. I'm not going to respond to everything that you said. I want to now segue into, um, so I don't want to leave anything hanging. 
And you did ask me a question on heterozygosity and allele. So I want to make sure I answer that. And then I'll segue into genetic entropy. But I want to point out, because you were saying that, you know, Rob Carter believes this, John Sanford believes that. And so here's uh, an article, technical article, where uh, Dr. Rob Carter addresses uh, Dan Stern Cardinal in detail. Now, again, for the audience sake, this is the same PhD who's published on mitochondrial DNA in the secular literature. He came up with the Eve consensus sequence. You know, he knows his stuff. He's an expert in this. So what he said was he, referring to Dan Stern Cardinal, claims I misunderstand the substitution rate versus the mutation rate. He says, I am perfectly well aware that the long-term substitution rate is not the same as the genealogical mutation rate. However, over long periods of time, and this is what I was saying to you, over long periods of time in a population in mutation drift equilibrium, the two are nearly equal. Because notice this, there is also not, as he claims, a conflict between the thought that A, most mutations are lost due to drift, what you were saying, and the mutation rate is approximately the same as the fixation rate. Why? Because, and remember, this is what I was arguing, because even if most mutations are lost in a large population, Many are not. This is basic population genetics. So, you know, a lot of evolutionists will say, well, Dr. Carter says this and believes this. Dr. Sanford says this and believes this. But then they elaborate by saying, even though most mutations are lost in large populations, many are not. So I'm not going to respond to your other points that you made there because I did say I'd give you the last word. I'm not sure if you read that article. I do recommend it. Um, let me quickly address the point you made on got a lot of notes here so you said um most people have two alleles per person so four alleles where do you how do you explain uh positions in the genome where you have more than uh, a couple alleles if created heterozygosity is true I pointed out earlier that for the audience sake, okay, heterozygosity just means a state of DNA diversity. Homozygosity is a state of, of no DNA diversity where you'd have uh, you know, the, basically the same letter at the same gene rather than a different one. Now, most of the world's variation though is only two alleles, A or C, G or T, okay? But the problem is that I find the evolutionists don't understand is after creation, Okay, we have thousands of years for mutations to occur. We have thousands of years for uh, recombination events and also gene conversion. Okay, but when it comes to alleles, firstly, we know that many alleles we see today appear to be mutation related. Let's say blue eyes, for example, right? It only exists, it's isolated in a specific group. It's, it's rare. When you find rare alleles, you understand that it's recent and therefore... Um, the result of mutation and not creation. Because a lot of uh, evolutionists, they'll ask, you know, how can you tell the difference between that which is mutation, that which is the result of creation? Well, if it's common, if it's non-disease causing, if it's functional, then it's probably created. If it's rare, it's disease causing, it's isolated to specific groups, then it's a mutation, okay? But the point I wanna say is, and here's basically the answer to your question, is if you were to build, a, just build a basic family tree, Start with Adam, and we just spent last half an hour on family trees, basically, so this shouldn't be too difficult. You'll notice all of, of the numerous branches, okay? That means you have plenty of time and opportunity for mutations to arise in different lineages and different spots. But we also have, and I've got papers to demonstrate this, okay? For sake of time, I won't pull them up. You have to take my word for it. Oh, you, you probably know this. We have many genes that are highly mutable. 
we saw in the African population, I think it was the HBB region was, was more mutable than, than other regions and more mutable in that people group. Okay. So in those specific genes, like the immune system, for example, the human immune system has massive numbers of variants. But when you consider the fact that there's 7 billion people, the mutation rate is high and certain regions of the genome can accumulate more mutations than other regions then it makes sense that we would have certain spots within the, um, within the genome that have more alleles, more variation. Okay, so I don't find that, that that's a problem for the created heterozygosity model. I do wanna talk about genetic entropy, but of course, I said a lot there, but it's a good question. It's one of the major objections to the created heterozygosity model, but I don't see it as being a problem. Go ahead, Grayson. It just kind of sounds like evolution with extra steps to me. I mean, it basically what I'm hearing is that all of the alleles arose from mutation and, and natural selection and evolutionary mechanism. It sounds like microevolution is basically what, I, what you're telling me. Um, and I like that what you said does make a prediction. We would predict that for traits that have lots of alleles, like blood type, I think has like over a thousand alleles or something crazy. So your prediction is that for those traits, the mutation rate that we observe at the sites of those traits in the genome should be elevated. I think that that's a prediction that we could test. And, you know, we'll see. I'll do some research on that and see if we have any data. But it's at least but, a falsifiable prediction. But remember, you and me alone have heterozygosity. I mean, we have between, I think, four and seven variants just in us. Two people have, you know, if you're speaking to a room in a lecture hall and you just look at the room, there's basically almost a representation of the world's variation. Yeah, but okay? you have to start but, from just two people. Right. But when you have two people and you have capital A, lowercase a, capital B, lowercase b, and this is applied to millions of positions within the genome. And the proper definition of an allele is what? A, gene a genetic variant at a specific what? Loci. But Loci. But the, the thing is, is that with two people, you can only have four alleles. Each of them right. can only have one allele for a trait, like on each copy of their genome. Like we're diploid. So we can only have two for each person. So anyways, I, I well, let's, just, <laughs> let's just move on to the but, to another topic. Okay, here. we will. But I just want to say this. You have the right answer. An allele is a variant of a gene at a specific loci. There's millions of uh, locations in the genome and you have millions of spots within the genome where you have capital A, lowercase a, capital B, lowercase b. That is essentially an unlimited potential for variation, chromosomal combinations. Yeah, it's a fact. You're thinking there's just two alleles and then that's it. There's genetic variants at specific locations with millions of locations in the genome, and therefore millions of locations in the genome that have the potential for variation. So I don't see it but, being an issue. For you one do, trait, for one trait, that gene is going to be located at one part of the genome, right? So if you're saying that they had like other alleles for the same trait at other places in the genome, we would see the evidence of that. Not everybody would have a gene in the same location on their genome. We would see evidence of for people inheriting like a different allele from a different genome. And that gene would be located at a different loci in their genome if that was the case. And that's not what we see. So it, it's got to be, you know, two alleles per person. That's that's all, all you kind of got. I mean, we don't see that there are evidence that alleles well, within a single gene locations. within a single gene. How many single nucleotide variants can you have? 
you can have two alleles per individual. But within within an, uh, um, within one gene that spans, let's say thousands of nucleotides, how many how many SNVs can you have with, with within that? Within that Are you gene. talking about for a population of people? Like if there were a thousand people, each one of them could theoretically have a different allele. Right. But if they're just one person, they can only have two alleles. That's the max for one individual. Okay. So um, what I'm going to say is this, and then we can move on. Cause I don't want, I feel like we're just going in a circle here. Okay. I get what you're saying, but when you consider the fact that an allele is a variant of a gene at a specific loci and you have millions of locations in the genome. That means you have millions of spots where you can have capital A, lowercase a, capital B, lowercase b, which just means state of heterozygous. If it's capital A, capital A, capital B, capital B, there's no variation there. It's, it's homozygous, okay? But we also have from creation, just build a, a basic family tree and you can have Branches being laid down, lots of time for mutations in different lineages, different groups. We know there's hypermutable regions, okay? Especially the immune system. Yeah, we have a lot of different genes there. It's, it's, it's variable, highly variable, variable, but we also know from the literature that it's highly mutable. There's certain regions that are highly mutable. I mean, how does evolution explain that? That looks like it's designed to mutate in order to adapt to various environments. It looks like we're actually... Uh, going towards epigenetics, where we can have the environment es essentially dictating the organism that's in that respective environment, allowing it to have genes turned on or off for rapid adaptation to that environment. I mean, to me, this screams of forward thinking. Okay, but I, I, I know we, we should move on here. Go ahead. If you want to say something quick, and then I'd like to for sure move on to um, genetic entropy. Go ahead. No, no, you can move on. Like I said, I already... I, I feel like we would just be repeating ourselves at this point, but like if you, if like if you're thinking about Adam and you're saying he had these two alleles at this specific loci, but then for the same trait, he had two other alleles at a different location in the genome, right? If you're making that argument, then the populations that we see today should be a mix of having those genes at those two different locations. That's what we would expect. But, but if you if you have wait if you have Adam and Eve that are let's say a middle brown skin tone, and so they're capital A lowercase a capital B lowercase b, from there from that th those DNA differences those simple DNA differences, okay you can get every single shade of skin, so yeah just from that variation there on that one trait skin color. Okay, although there's a lot of other genes that are involved in skin color too. It's not as basic as that, but let's just say for simplification's sake, yeah, that middle brown skin based on the pre-existing heterozygosity, you get every single shade of skin because you have a lot of different mixes there. You have a, a, a lot of potential there for um, variation. You guys as the evolutionists, you guys are the ones that want to say, well, you know, variations and speciation events, you know, that takes millions of years because you guys explain the majority of genetic variation as being the result of mutations over time. So you need thousands to millions of years to accumulate mutations, accumulate the necessary variation for selection to act upon and for recombination to reshuffle per generation. But if those differences are already built in from creation, focus on one trait, sure, take skin color. Capital A, lowercase a, capital B, lowercase b, boom. You have the potential for every single shade of skin on the planet. But that's just one trait. 
and we have millions of positions in the genome. We have millions of spots that can be heterozygous and therefore uh, tons of variation with all types of traits. So I don't see there being a problem. I guess you do have a quick final word, I guess. And then we'll move on to um, genetic okay, yeah. entropy. My, my final word on this is that each individual can only ever have two alleles, one for each copy of their chromosome, right? It, it can't be at a different loci in the genome where we would see that. We don't see that when we look at people's genomes today. Everybody's got them at the same loci, majoritively. Um, like not, you know, there's non-homologous recombinations and all that, but for like the vast majority of people have them at the same loci. It's not what we'd expect to see. So Adam and Eve would each have a maximum of two alleles each, which is not sufficient to explain all the traits. That's my closing remarks. Do you just want to, do you want to skip to junk DNA or you want to go through? Cause like I said, we already talked about genetic entropy a lot in our last debates. If, if, if you've got new points to bring up, we can address those, but Good question. I think junk DNA and um, genetic entropy go hand in hand. Actually, created heterozygosity, what we were just talking about, goes hand in hand, too, because a prediction of design diversity, okay, is DNA function. But also with genetic entropy, if the majority of, genome, uh, of the genome is junk, okay, as you're going to argue, rather than functional, then most of these mutations that accumulate they can be absorbed by the junk regions of the genome, the neutral regions, and they can essentially absorb the deleterious effects. And so there, there's no deleterious effects. But if the majority of the genome is functional, let's say between 60 and 80%, that means at least 60 to 80 of those 100 new mutations per person per generation that are accumulating, that means 60 to 80 of those are deleterious. Well, there's been evolutionary population geneticists that have pointed out that even one to three per generation could be too much. Um, so, yeah, I think they go hand in hand, Grayson. So why don't we tackle genetic entropy and junk DNA almost simultaneously and maybe run with that for the next um, for the next little bit? Uh, OK, so since you had the last word there, let me just um, point out a couple things and let you respond okay so real quick before we jump into this i i haven't been being very uh rigid with the time so grayson we want to respect your time if you you know if you want to be pretty firm on the end of the debate time if you're flexible then we'll just go but as it is now we've got about 15 more minutes left we could go 15 or 20 or so you guys both yeah i'm open okay all right donnie is that good yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Right. Maybe in 15 minutes, if we're still going at it, we'll take a quick uh, two minute bathroom break. I'm getting no over a sinus infection. So I'm drinking a lot of water here. Yeah, and, then, uh, and then we'll come back. And then during that couple minutes, you can go over some announcements. So yeah, perfect. Okay. All right. All right. Um, go for it. Okay, here we go. So genetic entropy, what is it? It is the systematic breakdown of the internal biological information systems that make life alive. It results from genetic mutations. Here's an example of one mutation. There's, there's different types of mutations, point mutation, inversion mutation, frame shift mutation, duplication mutation. There's a ton, okay? This is one example. You have a point mutation. Here's the original sequence, T-A-A-C-T-A. -A -A. Now you get a point mutation, T-A-A-C-C, okay? So T to C, basically. Um, so mutations accumulate over time. The problem is, and this is where I want to get to this source that I have for you. Okay, so this is from Michael Lynch. 
Keatley, these are not creationists. These are well-known evolutionary population geneticists and evolutionary biologists. This is from the paper, Toward a Realistic Model of Mutations Affecting Fitness. So what do they say? In summary, the vast majority of mutations are deleterious. This is one of the most well-established. So right off the bat, let's not deny that most mutations are deleterious. Okay. The solutions have to take into account this basic fact. I do deny that. Well, then you're denying a well-established principle of evolutionary genetics because they're saying that this is supported by both molecular and quantitative genetic data. So is it your position that, that you disagree with this summary here? The consensus of geneticists is the nearly neutral model. Nearly neutral means slightly deleterious. No, nearly neutral means that slightly deleterious and slightly beneficial and all the mutations in between act as nearly neutral mutations. Beneficial mutations are rare. The only ones that are going to be removed are the high impact mutations. So the ones that are, you know, big enough for selection to see the ones that they're, that are going to kill a person, a single point mutation can kill somebody. Okay, so that's high impact enough for selection to see and remove from the equation. No, we agree Problem. on that. I'm saying the vast majority of mutations are not visible to selection and behave as if they are neutral because they're within a range where selection <laughs> doesn't doesn't apply to them, basically. Like they're, they're not, it, it's no. too minute of a difference for selection to act on. That's somewhat right. Okay, it's right in the sense that they act as neutral mutations as in selection can't see them they go undetected they're invisible to selection okay where you're wrong on is the fact that although selection can't see them they are slightly deleterious in the same way that a single spelling mistake in a book the size of an encyclopedia is deleterious okay on their own these single spelling mistakes they're inconsequential you're not going to notice them but as they accumulate over time the book the size of an encyclopedia it descends into gibberish the message is lost okay it's also akin to rust on a car single rust molecules over time on a car inconsequential barely noticeable but after 10 years go by you need a new car the car is here's the difference is that genetic drift gets rid of 99.99% of all that rust after a couple generations. So that's wrong as well. Okay, so nearly neutral, these low impact deleterious mutations, because they're unselectable, selection can't see them, what they do is they actually spread throughout the population. If selection can't see them, how is selection removing them? How it's are they not. removed from the equation? Selection is not removing them. Genetic drift is. How is genetic drift removing them from the equation? If they're subject to genetic drift because they're nearly neutral, tell me, how is that solving your problem? Right. Even your own sources like Sanford, Carter, Roop, they all agree with this. It In the creationist model, genetic drift gets rid of 99.99% of, of mutations. Like we can pull up the paper it's their paper on Haldane's Ratchet. They say it in the paper themselves. Uh, there's just a video last week that Rob Carter put out where he reifies that fact that 99.99% of mutations. But he also pointed out 
that a lot of mutations are not, and that eventually your accumulate or your uh, per generation rate equals the fixation rate in a large population. We exist in a large population. So I need you to expand. I don't know if you even understand what you're saying in terms of genetic drift. If these mutate, hey, let's say people all around the globe, let's make it easy for the audience. People all around the globe are accumulating roughly 100 new mutations per person. Per, they're, they're accumulating those from their parents, from their grandparents, 200 mutations, okay? And it goes back. Every generation is more mutant than the generation before. This is happening population-wide, okay? So how in the world, if these are accumulating, selection can't see them, explain in layman's terms, how is genetic entropy getting rid of these mutations that are accumulating population-wide spreading through the population as people intermarry and inter intermingle how are they being right. removed explain in layperson's terms okay so you have only 50 percent of the mutations that each of your parents have okay now i know rob carter wants to point out that those add to 100 yes so the key though is that the specific mutations are halved every generation that you're getting through each parental line so if you go back, like like I said earlier, your great, 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 great grandfather, whatever, you are getting almost none of the mutations that he got during his um, during his generation. The you're saying, oh, but a lot do. That a lot do is like the 0.001% that actually achieve fixation. Because like I said, it's a basic principle in population genetics that every single mutation that happens is bound to either go to reach 100% fixation, which is not very likely, or it's going to be erased in genetic drift, which is very, very likely, over 99%. So the, the, the amount of mutations, my genetic load is, uh, is, a, is a sum of all of the genetics of my ancestors, but they begin dropping off by 50% every generation. So the odds that I have gen mutations that many generations ago first impacted my family line are very little every generation is wiping these out due to genetic drift so even though there's no purifying selection drift is more than capable of wiping out these mutations like because of sexual reproduction meiosis you know recombination crossing over these things um that's the main point Okay, so you said this last time, sexual reproduction, meiosis, recombination, genetic drift. No, they don't solve the problems. This is Dr. John Sanford. Here's a source. Highly recommend it. I've got it uploaded on my channel, lecture at the National Institute for Health. <clears throat> okay, that's not a creationist organization. Genetic entropy can genome degeneration be stopped, uh, degradation be stopped. It's a legit problem. And he discusses uh, throughout this lecture that these, these mechanisms have been looked at. Okay, contrary to what the critics say about Mendel's accountant, results from Mendel's accountant, which, which utilizes realistic parameters, you can change it, you can say this many beneficials or this little of beneficials, this much junk, this little junk, this amount of selection, you, you, it, you can utilize realistic parameters. They've actually published in secular journals, okay, the results of these numerical simulations. And the results are always the same, that degeneration is, is inevitable, okay? What you're saying doesn't work because, again, you have mutations population-wide. Let's just say, and I said this the last time, but I think it's an irrefutable argument, so I'm going to say it again, okay? We can, we can look to the recombination. We can look to um, 
some form of purifying selection. We can look to beneficial mutations. Let's just say that 8 billion people on the planet, selection, you know, you, you remove 50% of the worst mutants. We're all multiply mutant. Every generation is more mutant than the previous generation. That's the point. Okay. Regardless of, of everything you're saying here, you still have every generation being more mutant than the prior generation. That is a fact. You can't get away with that. Okay. That's what so, I'm trying to address. Even that, like in Mendel's accountant, they're in Mendel's accountant in the papers that Sanford is publishing, they say 99.99% of every mutation is wiped out from genetic drift. That's in these papers. That's in Mendel's accountant. Like if you have enough generations here, like there's a huge tapering off effect. You get an asymptotic approach to zero as you start factoring in which mutations you're inheriting from your distant ancestors, right? So as you go along, you know, you're at a genetic load homeostasis, right? Because every generation is getting, you know, there, there's a die off effect of mutations that you're inheriting from your deep ancestors and every generation that like tracks forward. So there's not an increase in the total mutations like and the total genetic load per generation. That's yes, not there is. just why I, 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 because you butted in, I lost my train of thought. I just want to finish the point I'm making. Okay. The problem is even if you were to invoke unrealistic amounts of purifying selection and you got rid of 50% of, of the of the worst mutants on the planet, you're left with four billion. You're still left with four billion people that are more mutant than the previous generation. If you invoke too much selection, then that results in extinction. So you can't selection's limited. Plus, there's a lot of noise going on, okay? Because you have a lot of nearly neutral mutations that are accumulating. You have your rare beneficial mutations accumulating, okay? Although most of them aren't even uh, selected and manifested simply because of the noise that's going on. And what you're saying in terms, you're, you're misrepresenting what Dr. Carter and Dr. Sanford are, are pointing out because they themselves say that no matter what you look to, no matter what parameters you use, for example, here, mutations are um, realistic parameters. Mutations are overwhelmingly deleterious. I actually confirmed this with Dr. Sanford himself. Okay. Most mutations are subtle. So they get lost in the noise. They are accumulated unchecked. They go on. They don't have to reach fixation. Not every single nearly neutral, low impact deleterious mutation needs to be uh, reach fixation. They just need to accumulate in the population. They result in disease. That's why every single year you have thousands of new mutation related disease popping up. In his lecture at the National Institute for Health, Dr. Sanford pointed out that autoimmune diseases are on the rise, cancers like one in three, autism might have a genetic component to it. There's immunological uh, issues due to mutations. You know, mutations are causing problems. And every single time they invoke realistic parameters in these numerical simulations, even when you assume 90% of the genome is junk, the simulations manifest results that say that genetic degeneration is inevitable. Populations descend into sickness. They don't have to reach fixation. They just have to float around the population. They result more and more in degeneration. Okay. We've seen small scale examples of uh, genetic degeneration with Neanderthals, with mammoths, with isolated populations like butterflies, with, you know, the hobbit, the hobbit so-called pre-human ancestor. So, no, I don't think your answers are cutting it. I don't think you're dealing with the problem. Go ahead, uh, Grayson. 
Right. Yeah. The key in those examples is that they're small, isolated populations that are dying out because of environmental reasons. The mammoth, Neanderthal, all of these things died out, not because they reached genetic entropy and like they, they died out because they couldn't cut it because the environment changed in the case of the mammoth or overhunting or they got out competed by like Neanderthals did. There are other reasons that explain why these uh, species went extinct. It's not genetic entropy which doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Like when we look like the prediction of genetic entropy is that every generation should have a higher gener uh, gene load, uh, like a mutation load than the previous. This is very easy to empirically verify. We can just go to a lab, get a sample, measure the genetic load per generation. And we see it's the same. It doesn't increase every generation. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. Okay, so you made a few points here that are wrong. Okay, so firstly, I want to point out that your population geneticists that are not even creationists, okay, they agree, for example, Lynch and Crow, that humans are degenerating at a rate of between 1% to 5% of fitness per each generation. So yeah, each generation, we are getting more and more degenerate, and we know more and more is. sick, more and more unhealthy. These numerical simulations have demonstrated that. These examples in mammoths and Neanderthals, yes, they're isolated, they're inbred. What that means is your homozygous alleles that are accumulating, you're getting more homozygous spots in the genome, less heterozygous spots, and you have more deleterious mutations that could uh, lead to harm because they're being manifested. You got this hidden reservoir of genetic mistakes that are now uh, you know, manifested, they lead to rapid and accelerated genetic degeneration. That's microgenetic entropy. But in, in the human population, we have 8 billion people. The more mutations that accumulate generation after generation, the more homozygous alleles there are, less heterozygous alleles. And basically, you eventually descend into something similar that these small, isolated, inbred populations descend into. It takes longer for large populations to descend into that. But again, these famous geneticists are pointing out that humans are degenerating more and more every single year. Every chromosome, as you can see here, has a complex array of nearly neutral and deleterious mutations. That means every generation is going to be more and more mutant. And again, I don't feel like you're adequately dealing with it. Right. I feel like you're disagreeing genetic with the population geneticists. Go ahead. Genetic drift totally deals with this. But beyond the point... no. Yeah, all, all you're saying is genetic drift. Wait, wait, wait. As I was saying, with mammoths, Neanderthals, and humans, there are environmental reasons that we would observe the, the genomes that we do, right? Like with humans, as I said, there's relaxed selection, medical technology that is clearly the driver of this. Even Lynch says in his paper that, like, we observe this effect in industrialized nations that have access to medical technology. We're not seeing this in hunter-gatherers. I, I mean, <laughs> all right. Hey, so no, no, I, I, that's, that's time, but uh, I think it's fair. Uh, uh, Grayson, you, I believe you had the last word last time. So if it's okay with you, we'll give Donnie the last word, and then we'll uh, give you guys a few minutes to go and do what you need to do. And I'll go over a couple announcements. So, okay, Donnie, can you wrap it up in a, maybe a minute? Yes, I'll take a minute. We'll take that two-minute break, and then we'll wrap it up. When we come back, uh, Grayson, we'll do 15 minutes of junk DNA. Okay, so again, you said the same thing last time. Th the problem is, and again, I find, Grayson, that you are, and again, we have five-minute closing statements at the end. So <laughs> I know we all want the last word. If there's something I say that bothers you, save it for the closing statement. So 
I feel like you're disagreeing with population geneticists. You're disagreeing with these papers that say it's a well-established fact that the vast majority of mutations are deleterious. And these authors actually assume that the majority of the genome is junk. So if the majority of the genome is actually functional, 60 to 80%, let's say, then that basically makes uh, evolution impossible. Okay, these nearly neutral mutations, not the high impact ones. So yes, in humans, because there's relaxed selection, we take care of each other, we take care of the sick, we have hospitals, we've removed a lot of selection that exists in the wild. So what that means is a lot of high impact mutations that pop up that are disease causing that would normally kill an organism in the wild or kill a human that's not being taken care of medically, okay? Those humans with those mutations, those diseases where they wouldn't survive in the wild, they survive because they're taken care of and therefore they can have kids pass on their genes. If I'm born with a high impact mutation that results in, in one leg, in the wild, the zebra that's born with one leg, guess what? That's dinner. The lion's gonna get the zebra. Selection deals with, with that mutant. But in humans, we would take care of somebody who's born with a mutation that results in, you know, one limb, a loss of a limb. Well, I could hypothetically still have children pass on my mutation. So yes, in terms of the high impact deleterious mutations, there's relaxed selection. But the problem with genetic entropy, the problem that these numerical simulations that have been published in secular journals, okay, the problem is that they accumulate unchecked. They accumulate unchecked in humans and they accumulate unchecked in the wild in your higher mammals, higher mammals. There's a paper out that says that they all basically have high mutation rates, similar to humans. Okay, so it's the low impact mutations that we're worried about, not necessarily the high impact ones. So re relaxed selection, yes. High impact mutations can now get through, a lot of them in the human population where they wouldn't in the wild, but that's not the point. The point is the low impact mutations, the ones that are only slightly deleterious, the ones that these population geneticists readily admit is a theoretical problem and they're looking for solutions. And so far those solutions haven't cut it. So I'll wrap it up there. All right, sounds good. Sounds like there's a lot of meat still on the bone for round two. <laughs> I'm sure you wanna hit that, uh, talk up a little bit more about that, Grayson. Um, all right, so there's a few events coming up I wanna make you guys aware of. We have a, de a, a debate coming up with CJ is theistic determinism biblical? That'll be good, whether you agree with CJ or not. He's a heavy hitter. I'm not sure about Dan, who he's debating, but I'm sure it'll be a good debate. Um, we have another, uh, we have a debate with Kelly Powers. If you guys are familiar with him, he's he's pretty good. He's been on the channel a few times. Is oneness biblical or is it heretical? So that's always going to be entertaining. We have the the undefeated Kent Hoven, he's he's going to be coming back, and Grayson might not agree with that comment, but <laughs> but um, yeah, they're still stepping up to take the evolution challenge. And if you're an evolutionist and you want to take the evolution challenge, Kent Hoven is just dying to get another debate, um, as always. So yeah, go ahead and email Donnie at uh, Standing for Truth here. I think his emails and the information. I can drop it in the chat if you don't have it. Uh, we have. Uh, Professor McQueen, he's going to be doing a debate on the biblical flood, which will be great. I love Professor McQueen. He's uh, he's so knowledgeable and insightful. And so we have uh, Michael J. Ort. He's been on the channel a few times. You guys, he's a pretty heavy hitter. He's going to be talking about the flood boundary. That's going to be really good. That's going to be coming up. So you guys check out the uh, the channel. Subscribe if you haven't. That'd be great. If you go into the, the home section, you scroll down a bit, you'll see all of the upcoming events. Um, I'm sure that there's more to come. Donnie's always got a bunch of stuff in the 
in the works. There's a debate coming up at the Lutheran doctrine of baptism. Is it biblical? That ought to be interesting. What do you guys think? Is, is baptism a requirement for salvation? Can you enter heaven without being baptized? Um, yeah, so that's pretty much it. All that I can see right now with the upcoming events, you guys. So hit that thumbs up if you haven't. Remember, if you have any questions, tag me, uh, Redefine Living. And I'm pinning these uh, these comments, setting them aside. We don't have a lot. We could use a few more maybe if there's any questions I've missed. If you guys can think of a good question regarding genetic entropy, I'm sure both debaters are just dying to you know talk about that a little bit more. It seems like we're going to maybe cut get into that right now um, we'll see how it goes but yeah so that's about it hopefully that these guys are gonna come back pretty quick or else i'm gonna have to start singing and i don't think any of us want that <laughs> all right well we'll see here maybe you could ask a question uh for me like if there's a question directed at me, well, Donnie's gone. I don't know. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, we're good. All right. Perfect. Sam, great job on the announcement. Right there. I was getting nervous. All right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sweating. So, Grayson, uh, you're making Grayson, you're making me sweat. This is fun. This is technical. Well, um, amazing. I know you mentioned that you wanted to to talk about genetic entropy for about 15 more minutes, and that's fine with me, but that would be an additional 15 minutes to what you guys had agreed on. Is or junk that, DNA, you mean? Uh, was that what it was? Because as it is right now, we're about ready for closing statements and question and answers. Unless you guys agree to to go longer or maybe around two. Okay, why don't we do? do it makes no difference to me. Grayson, since we did a lot of prep for junk DNA, and I think that would basically wrap up the topics that we agreed to talk about. Why don't we do 15 minutes of junk DNA, five minute closings, and then... 25-minute questions. Okay. Well, I do feel a little bit heartbroken because my favorite prediction is chromosome 2 fusion. So I wanted to talk about that. But sure, junk DNA, um, pretty easy to understand. Uh, most of the DNA doesn't have a known function, um, shouldn't have a known function. We can measure how many, many of the sequences are constrained versus unconstrained. Uh, meaning that it doesn't matter what letter of the G of, of ACTG it is. If it's unconstrained, we get measurements, you know, 91% unconstrained, 9% constrained. Um, we can measure based on mutation rates. We get this, the same, like two to 10% of the D of the genome should be functional based on the mutation rate that we observe. Um, but the, the main argument that I like the best for junk DNA is the observation that there is not, no correlation between complexity of an organism and the size of its genome, like the, the amount of DNA that it has. So this is what I've been waiting to ask is called the onion question. So we know that humans have about 3 billion uh, base pairs and onions have about 16 billion base pairs. So the question for Donnie is that if all of this DNA is truly functional and it's not junk, do you believe that you are less than four times as complex as an onion, right? Is an onion that much more complicated than a human made in the image of God, that God requires four to five times more DNA to make an onion than a human? So that's just where I'll leave it for the start. <clears throat> okay. 
I appreciate it, uh, Grayson. I wrote that down. So let me start from the top and I will get to your onion question. Good question. Um, and this is a good topic to now dive into after the um, topic of genetic entropy, because essentially if the majority of the genome is functional, then that's strong evidence for created heterozygosity because that's a direct prediction of the design diversity model that suggests that the majority of, of DNA, DNA elements, including pseudogenes, endogenous retroviruses, and ALU sequences are functional, beneficial to the respective organism. It also uh, refutes evolution and basically props up genetic entropy because now more mutations are accumulating that are... Um, deleterious. And so those can drift throughout the population, float around. You know, I, I just have to add this in. And once you go next, you can say something because it, it does kind of blend is, you know, genetic um, entropy and genetic drift. Genetic drift actually makes genetic entropy even stronger because if these functional regions of the genome are hit with mutations, these mutations are unselectable, they're invisible. And so they're subject to genetic drift. They, they float around. Okay, they're not removed. They float around, um, resulting in more genetic sickness, and some get fixed. So either the ones that float around or get fixed, it's still bad. It's no help. Okay, but so this is why it's so important because again, it's a double whammy. DNA function demonstrates uh, two of the major Cretaceous models. So in uh, 2012, uh, scientists were surprised to see that, and you can see here, Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, the ENCODE project. Uh, they assigned at least 80% of the genome was active, transcriptions about uh, 60%. Um, over the years, there, there's been follow-up papers and, you know, there's debate now, you know, is it 60%? Is it 80%? Either way, any more than, let's say, 20%, realistically, 10% is too much for, for evolution, okay? So the biochemical approach, I do have uh, slides here demonstrating why that approach is the best in terms of uh, function and also why the um, genome-wide activity really is legit activity and not just noise or spurious as Grayson would argue here. And here's a couple of reasons and I'll wrap it up with the onion question and then take as long as you want, Grayson. So uh, firstly, I said this in our first debate, transcription, it's an energy intensive resource. Um, it, it's a resource intensive process releases a lot of heat releases a lot of energy and um nucleotides are being utilized literally in this process to produce rna molecules that if they were to just end up being noise or spurious that's problematic because of the fact that it is an energy intensive pro process every time you add you know a nucleotide to a growing rna chain you're consuming a lot of energy atp which is the main source of energy for the cell is used in many of the stages of um, of transcription. Okay, DNA to RNA to, to protein from RNA to proteins translation. So we're talking about DNA to RNA. These functional RNA transcripts they function in, in a variety of ways. So it would be faulty to assume that most of the non-coding region is is uh, non-functional evolutionary uh, leftovers, essentially. So again, if this was just noise, if this was just spurious, then, you know, if and just junk, this unnecessary uh, transcription, 
And, uh, you know, Grayson has some responses to this, so we'll deal with that. They sh it should be dealt with through various evolutionary mechanisms if that were the case. Over time, millions of years, selection should remove this junk because it's just wasting energy, wasting resources for the cell. Or there should even be uh, mechanisms in place that can suppress this junk and prevent it from being transcribed and therefore using all that ATP and using all of the uh, energy that's required. So his last question here, the onion question. So that is a, um, a very good question. And it comes to, it comes down to the fact that what we have in the genome, the genomes of living organisms, this includes plants, this includes uh, various species of fish like lungfish. This includes um, a, a lot of your uh, different mammals, uh, or some of your salamanders. There's certain animals and plants, especially that have 50 times more DNA than humans. Well, why is that the case? Well, firstly, the amount of DNA that an organism have has doesn't necessarily tell us how complex that organism is. Okay, just because an organism has more DNA does not mean that it's more complex than, let's say, a human being. Let's say a certain plant has more DNA than the human. That doesn't mean that it's more complex, okay? And we have in the design diversity model, we have something that is called over-engineering, okay? And what this is, I'll make it understandable, is when, when you design or build a bridge, you don't just build a bridge to hold up the weight of the exact number of cars that you expect to drive on the bridge. You build it 10 to 20 times stronger than the number of vehicles that you expect to be driving on the bridge. This is called over-engineering or over-designing. And it is, as a matter of fact, it is good design. This type of design adds robustness and reliability. How does this answer his question? Well, a lot of plants, they are subjected, and especially you can read papers about lungfish and the harsh environmental conditions that are rapidly changing that they exist in. Think about the rapidly changing weather-related conditions that plants exist in. Okay, we're humans, we live in a house, we have shelter, we can put clothes on, we can protect ourselves from harsh environmental conditions. Plants can't do this, okay? Your plants can't put on a coat, build a house. So they need a lot of redundancy. They are over-engineered in order to survive, to have robustness in terms of these ever-changing environments, these harsh, harsh environments. And there's evidence for this. We have paper upon paper that shows rapid evolution. They'll say rapid evolution, but it's actually rapid adaptation of various uh, plant species, various uh, fish species. They have these fish species that enter cold water. Okay. That's not the environment they existed in, but because of the pre-existing ability to adapt based on the redundancy, the over-engineering epigenetics, for example, they actually rapidly adapt to this new environment. Rapid adaptation based on the pre-existing ability to do so. And so that's why you have some plants that actually have 50 times more DNA than humans is because they are over-engineered. They are designed with a lot of redundancy for survivability, robustness, and adaptation. I said a lot there, uh, Grayson, so take your time. Okay, so um, first you said, uh, you're talking about the ENCODE results. Um, so I would just point out that ENCODE itself uh, came out with how much each of these regions is being transcribed. So they put out the rates of these transcriptions. And we see that about 70% 
of that 80% number. So 70% of all of the transcribed RNA that ENCODE uh, measured was at a, uh, at a concentration of like one transcript per cell. Uh, in in biochemistry, you're not that's you're not going to have any functionality with something that's only prescribed one transcript per cell. Um, that's very quickly degraded by uh, the enzymes around it. It's it's not having an effect. Um, so you know, ENCODE showed that most of this stuff is is spurious. Um, and then Donnie brought up this energy problem, saying that oh, it takes so much energy to do all this transcription. I would like to point out the fact that junk DNA is somewhat special for eukaryotic cells. Um, we don't observe this much tra like spurious transcription in prokaryotes. Um, and what, is, what do eukaryotes have that prokaryotes do not? Uh, they have mitochondria. So mitochondria increase the amount of energy that's available to a eukaryotic cell by nearly a thousand percent fold uh, from prokaryotes. I mean, it's like a huge increase in the available DNA, in the available energy that the cell has. Um, and then they also have a nucleus. So all of these transcripts that are produced are contained within the nucleus. So they can't leak out and have all these effects elsewhere. The enzymes within the nucleus quickly break them down. And actually we see a lot of the computation about saying, you know, which transcripts will make it on um, to be transcribed, to be translated. Um, we see that in a lot of DNA splicing. So when, when a transcript is spliced and, and the order is changed up, it, it, in, it inquires certain markers that the cell machinery uses um, to, to, you know, figure out where it needs to go, like to, to, to sort it, basically. And most of these transcripts don't have any spliceosome interaction. They don't have any introns to splice out. There's no splicing activity. They're just created and pop they're degraded um we can see this um in like ervs for example um where you you look at for something to be functional right for something to be transcribed it's got to have or translated it's got to have codons um it's got to have an open reading frame so a start codon a stop codon everything in between that's what's read so only 0.15% of ERVs even have an open reading frame. So they can't, only 0.15% can even be read uh, by the cell's machinery. So it's a very, very, very small percentage of the total ERVs. And then finally, I don't think that that really addresses the onion problem because more DNA, if, if all the DNA is functional and doing a function, more DNA does have to mean more complex. If there's more functions going on in the genome, in an organism, like that, that, that has to be more complex. I mean, you have more things going on, more functionality in the genome that's bigger if all these genes are functional. Um, so I don't think that that uh, rescues you. And then I would just point to um, organisms like tardigrades that have... Uh, you know, they're the most robust. They can survive the most different situations of any organism alive. You know, what's their genome size? Is it the most, is it the largest genome of any organism? No. Uh, so it's not like these things correlate to robustness or 
or how these, you know, it, it doesn't correlate to that either. I mean, wheat, domesticated wheat can get knocked out by all kinds of conditions. And yet, you know, it's got a ton of DNA. So these things don't equal robustness either. I mean, they it doesn't fit in a paradigm that says that most of the genome is functional. It just doesn't compute. <clears throat> okay. Let me just make sure I'm unmuted. All right. Lots there and lots of fun points to address. So where should I start? Okay. Um, I'll start from the beginning then and kind of move from there. So you said <clears throat> that ENCODE themselves essentially uh, – revealed that most of this activity and transcription was spurious, was noise, not really doing anything. Um, what's funny is even for sake of argument, this isn't the case, I'm going to refute it. Okay. But just for sake of argument, even if the genome was only 10 to 20% functional. Okay. And this is why genetic entropy and junk DNA goes hand in hand. Okay, what that means is you still have 10 deleterious mutations accumulating from generation to generation, even if the genome is 10% functional, okay? Any more than that, so say it's 20, it's 30, it's 60, then that's 20, 30, and 60 new deleterious mutations accumulating per generation. That makes evolution impossible, essentially, okay? And there have been uh, population geneticists in the past that have pointed out that even one per generation could be an issue. This is why the evolutionary community needs as much junk as possible. Again, I know the evolutionists hate it, but Mendel's accountant, the results of it have manifested in secular journals, and they've demonstrated that a genome of 90% uh, junk and 10% function is still too much for evolution to proceed, okay? Here's just a couple excerpts from papers where we see a rapid evolution in... Uh, plant species. Animals are evolving faster than you think. Again, there's a lot of functional redundancy. There's a lot of over-design, okay? You're not going to build your bridge with in mind, well, you know, only 10 cars are going to drive over this. So I'm going to design the bridge to hold 10 cars. No, you're going to design the bridge to hold hundreds of cars, over-design. Now, here's the thing. If you have plants with a with a lot of redundance. Here's an example of the evolutionist just not wanting to tap out. Again, the size of the genome, even if you have a genome that has more redundancy, let's say 30 times more redundancy in plants than in humans, or even just more areas of mutation buffer, that doesn't make it more complex because humans being higher mammals have genetic sequences and DNA elements that are involved in what? The brain, brain activity, heart activity, the circulatory system, the respiratory system. There's so many more complex organs in a higher mammal than in a plant species. Even these endogenous retroviruses he's talking about here. I wrote a whole book on it. And I think Grayson and I should do our third debate only on chromosome two fusion and endogenous retroviruses, because this could take another three hours. Endogenous retroviruses, there's paper after paper telling us that if we didn't have endogenous retroviruses, we wouldn't exist because they function in embryological development. They function in the immune system. They function in determining cell types. They function as antiviral protectors. And the reason why they are built the way they are with your LTRs, long terminal repeats, your ENV, your GAG, your pole genes, okay, they're designed that way because they use a mechanism called viral mimicry, where firstly, they can fight off tumors. Okay, and they can also fight off invading exogenous retroviruses. So they need that sequence similarity to exogenous retroviruses to carry out 
to systematically carry out many of their functional roles, okay? These are functions and these are organs that are essentially um, workable through DNA sequences and DNA elements that onions and plants simply don't have. So just because they have more areas of redundancy and over-design doesn't make them more complex. So that simply doesn't work, okay? So again, I don't find that this argument is working because low-level transcription, that doesn't matter. If Firstly, it's like the um, chromosome 2 fusion. This is why we should talk about it briefly. They try and say, oh, the DDX11L2 or the DDX11L2 gene, you know, it's just uh, expressed at low levels transcription. Firstly, it's apples and oranges. When you're comparing protein coding sections of the genome and non-protein coding sections of the genome, your low level transcription in your, in your non-protein coding regions of the genome, that could e equate to high levels of function versus a, uh, you know, a higher or lower uh, transcription in protein coding regions, okay? That's why they now, they know this, and that's why they look for what's called co-expression. And so we know that, that the DDX11L2 gene is functional. It's not a pseudogene. It lies within the first intron. You've got Ken Miller that's trying to say that it's actually outside but it's actually, he's been corrected on that. Anyways, I'm just going on a rabbit trail. This applies to the low level transcription. Who cares? If things are uh, transcribed at a low levels, that doesn't mean they're non-functional. There's a lot of ERV elements that are completely turned off. They're involved in embryo, uh, embryonic development. We have these ERVs that are involved in, you know, from zygote to baby fully formed healthy baby there's these various developmental windows that these ervs are functional in but once they're done their job they're turned off so these evolutionists with their evolutionary assumptions they assume well these are turned off or we knock them out and they don't affect the organism you know then they're junk no because a lot are turned off and they're only either they've done their job or they're there and waiting to be called upon via environment or epigenetics okay um my car. I rarely use the uh, rear wiper blade. I can't remember the last time I use the front wiper blades all the time. I rarely use the rear wiper blade. Okay. So because I barely use that and I, you know, does that mean that it's, it's not functional? No, it's there for when I need it. The spare tire in the back of the car. If I get a flat tire, thank God I got that spare tire because it's going to come in handy. That's an example of redundancy. The rear windshield wiper could be an example of what they say is um, what they say is transcribed at a low level. Let's just it, it doesn't mean non-functional is, is the point. So again, here's a, here's a few other reasons. Um, I should point out though that in 2017, a research team looking at non-coding RNAs argued that most, I think I've got the papers here. Uh, let's see. Knockout tests reveal function. No, notice this. Taken together, these knockout analyses of um, microRNAs and long non-coding RNAs, there's, there's at least twice as many long non-coding RNAs as there are protein coding ones. And they're functional just in a multitude of ways. You know, we have unexpected functional roles of, of these long non-coding RNAs. But but anyways, um, indicate that non-coding RNAs are certainly important in embryonic development and disease progression. So they're, they're snipped out, they're knocked out, and it results in disease. Okay, so there's paper upon paper about junk DNA 
uh, essentially being overturned, okay? But the main argument is, is this noise argument. So there's two papers that I think are significant in this. And Grace, I know you'll want to respond, so just make sure you're writing this stuff down. But you brought up a lot of points. I want to address them all, okay? So a research team, secular research team, they uh, were looking at non-coding RNAs. And they argued that most transcripts actually play some kind of functional role. They determined that non-coding RNAs are probably not just transcriptional byproducts, but comprise a diverse population of functional RNA transcripts. What's the point? Well, the point is, is we have a research team that worked independently of the ENCODE project. And Grayson wants to say, well, the ENCODE project, their results suggest that it's mostly spurious and noise. That's not the case. We have an independent team that are concluding that the transcription observed in the genome is mostly functional and not just biochemical noise. So that means this independent research further strengthens the results of the ENCODE project. OK, and then there was another paper in. Um, 2016, where um, but they didn't, uh, Grayson, as you're going, I'm going to find the papers. I've got hundreds of slides here, but I have them uh, for you up here. So just, um, just, to let, just to let you know, we're, we're past that 15 minute mark. So if you want to maybe finish this up and then we'll let Grayson have a, a few minutes to respond. And then we're, you want to just jump right into the closings. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll wrap it up. I'll wrap it up here with, um, with this point here, okay? So again, if, if these transcripts were not, were just noise and you know they weren't functional, then this would just clutter up the interior of the cell if they weren't playing any kind of um, functional role. But the most important point, and I'll wrap it up with here, is it easier to keep junk around for millions of years? I find Grayson was downplaying how much energy the ATP being used for transcription. I feel like he was downplaying it. Okay, because you can just go through, study the, the process of itself and everything involved with the RNA polymerase and the promoter and just the, the process of, of taking the gene's DNA sequence, transcribing it to make an RNA molecule. Okay, you've got transcription initiation, elongation, transcription termination. The elongation stage requires, notice this, this requires uh, lots of ATP. Okay, ATP is needed for transcription. For example, at the point where transcription factors get attached to the promoter region of DNA and also in the adding of nucleotides during elongation. Energy is also needed when the stop codon stage is reached and the mRNA, messenger RNA, is detached from the DNA. All steps of transcription require energy. Guys, it's an energy intensive process. And to just say that the genome is just transcribing it, it's easier to do so, rather than if evolution is true, having selection remove it in order to declutter the system, to say that is just an absolute, it's without evidence. It's an evolutionary derived rescue mechanism. It makes no sense. To say that it's just easier to transcribe it, even though it requires all of this energy, it doesn't make any sense scientifically. So I'll, I'll yield there. Uh, Grayson, go ahead. Wow, that was so many points. <laughs> okay. I'll try to work and address all of them. I hope I don't miss any of them. But first of all, the kind of energy that we're talking about, not that, not that much. I mean, I don't even know if it amounts to one extra bite of food for an organism. Like we're talking about on an organism level, how much more energy do you need to consume to support these extra transcription processes. It's not, a, it's not a lot. And furthermore, I think the main point that I'm saying is that most of this is outside of the 
um, like what selection sees, right? The, these energy differences are small enough to where on an organism level, there's other more pressing factors that are determining uh, your overall fitness. So in terms of the overall impact on an organism's fitness that natural selection would see, um, because of these like spurious transcriptions, so like very, very 70% of these were like one transcript per cell. So the challenge I have is find one functional area of the genome that only requires one transcript per cell. I don't think you can do it. I don't think that anything that we know that is functional only gets one transcript per cell. That is such a small concentration compared to everything else that we know of that actually plays a functional role and how much it's being transcribed. Um, so you mentioned a lot of ERVs, uh, uh, you mentioned ALUs, you mentioned long non-coding uh, non RNA, all of these things, when you hear the functions of these, just keep in mind what percent of these are functional it's like not even one percent of of them are functional like that the function that we actually do know um because most of these categories do have a very 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 small function like i said for ervs it's not even it's not even a tenth of a percent um that are shown to be functional and this is like not just saying oh well we don't know they could be transcribed we know the whole transcriptome like we know everything that's transcribed and code showed this and the amounts. And we know that like, like one tenth of a percent is even transcribed. And that stuff is just degraded very quickly after it's transcribed in the genome. This kind of thing is not a big impact on fitness. It's not something that natural selection even selects on because there's way more pressing factors. Like there's more pressing mutations that you have that are gonna impact your fitness more than needing a little bit more energy to transcribe like one transcript of all of these different areas. I mean, look at the things that actually have function. Look how much they're transcribed. It's like a lot. Um, and then finally, cause I just love chromosome two fusion, the DDX 11L2 gene uh, has no known function, right? There haven't been that many papers written on it. No paper has been able to discern a function. I'm not saying it's not functional here. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying if it does have a function, we've tried to figure out what that function is and we can't figure it out. And yes, there are two varieties. Some have two exons, some have one the, or some have three. The, the version that has three exons does include the fusion site as an intron, meaning it's spliced out of the, the end result, right? The exon is on the one side of it that is included in the long variant. But we don't know if any of these variants are doing anything and they're at, you know, one transcript per cell levels. And here's the here's the kicker, right? Here's the best part of this DDX11L2 is because you can use that gene to prove chromosome 2 fusion. Because the prediction, right? If we look at the DDX11 genes, right? The, all the gene families of which that this gene belongs that's supposedly here at this fusion site. Um, we look at 98% of them are conserved among primates. All the primates have like a huge amount of overlap in our DDX11 uh, genes. And so we look at the, the two, and, and by the way, these DDX11 genes are always found next to the telomeres, the ends of the chromosomes. 
the only place in the genome where you find a DDX11 gene that is not at the very end is at the fusion site where the two ends fuse together. And the best part is when we look at chimpanzees and we look at the two genes, the, the two chromosomes that are reported to have fused together to human chromosome two, we find the DDX11L2, the chimpanzee variant of it, we find it at the very end of the chromosome right next to the telomere that we would predict to find it at if the, G the chromosomes fuse together. That it, it, the DDX11L2 proves that these G, these chromosomes fused. It's a verified prediction. So that's why I just wanted to point that out. All right, Grayson, um, are you prepared for your five minute closing? Um, not actually, really, what I was going to say is, actually, what I was going to say, since he gets the five minute closing statement, he had two final words. This would give me the second final word. So let me take two okay. minutes to respond. Fair. There's no way I can respond to everything in two minutes, but then we'll have Grayson give five. You get five minute closing, then I get five, then we'll go audience Q&A. And my suggestion is an entire debate on chromosome two fusion the next round, <laughs> round three. All right, I'll, I'll, have, uh, I'll have Donnie at Standing for Truth set that up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we All go, right, two, two minutes. Minute. I'm gonna be out of breath after this two minutes. So I'm All starting. Right. All right. Starting now. Okay. You know what? Let's let's do the chromosome two fusion first. Okay. So firstly, this has all been dealt with. I find the evolutionists, unfortunately, they're not up to date on the technical literature. Okay. I've got paper upon paper here in front of me. Uh, this one here that I've studied greatly that I highly recommend. I'll put it in front of the camera. Debunking the debunkers. So Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins, he deals with the majority of these and he points out and you can actually just find uh, genetic data in these secular databases. You don't have to just take my word for it or his word for it, but the DDX11L2 gene is not a pseudogene. It is a highly essential gene that is required to sustain healthy cellular cells, okay? And since this gene actually generates long non-coding RNAs of a variety of types, it's even alternatively spliced that function in the cell. It cannot scientifically be referred to as a legit pseudogene. It's a second promoter. Okay, the fusion site itself, the 798 bear, uh, base pair region, it's a, it acts as a second promoter for the DDX11L2 gene. And promoters, we know uh, promoters turn genes on and off. They're basically like genetic switches. Okay, and they work to facilitate genes in producing transcripts in specific amounts, in the right spots, at the right time, and at particular rates. This is function because it turns out that the second promoter in the DDX11L2 gene, the gene that overlaps this apparent fusion site, is the fusion site itself. Okay, so notice this uh, in debunking the debunkers. Uh, Dr. Tompkins says, the fusion site sequence binds to at least 12 different transcription factors, doesn't sound like it's spurious to me, including RNA polymerase II, the key enzyme that transcribes genes. Along with the binding of RNA polymerase is the fact that transcription has also been shown to initiate inside the fusion-like sequence in a classic promoter-like fashion. In the last 10 seconds here, I've got a whole presentation on this. We'll save it for our next debate. It's co-expressed expressed in at least 255 different cell or tissue types. And the argument from Dr. Ken Miller's been destroyed. Okay, the, the site is indeed overlapped by the um, 
DDX1102 gene as it lies within the first intron. And so here, I got to wrap it up here. My question to the evolutionist is, how do you get highly functional genes? You have to stop saying that it's spurious, it's transcribed at low levels, it's a pseudogene, that's false. In order for us to proceed in a sophisticated conversation, you have to update yourself on the data here, on the techn technical literature. And the basic question is, how do you get highly functional genes by slamming together two chromosomes. And his other points we'll have to save for a follow-up debate. I've also got a five-minute closing statement to address his um, last junk DNA uh, points there. But wild discussion. I appreciate it. And that's my last two minutes. So, All right. Great debate, you guys. Grayson, you ready for your five-minute closing? Yeah, just so so just to address some of what he just said, uh, it's never been demonstrated what the function for DDX11L2 is. Never been demonstrated what that function is. We've tried. We don't know what the function is. So if he says it's functional, show me what that function is. Well, you can't. And then um, saying that the, the fusion site acts as a promoter. You know what else acts as promoters and is actively binded by transcription factors? Uh, telomeric repeats, which is what you see in telomeres, which is what the fusion site is, is two end-to-end -end telomeric uh, repeat sections fusing together. We would expect that to have a promotional activity from transcriptional binding. Like that's literally what telomeric repeats are known to do. It's not a surprise. Um, so I, I guess I'll just leave it on, on there for now. But uh, like I said, I love chromosome two fusion. I think it's a great a verified prediction of evolution. Um, right? Like we we see the, the apes have. 48 chromosomes, we have 46. That means we had to have a fusion. Um, and then we looked in the DNA and we saw it right there. I mean, that, that to me, that's the, the smoking gun. That's that's a great uh, verified prediction. But even beyond that, we already showed that, um, you know, you have nested hierarchies of DNA sequence homology, um, even in the regions that are, non-functional they're too degraded like he talked about how ervs need to have a certain structure a gag and a pole so they can do viral mimicry but then he also talked about syncytin and how it's uh necessary for uh, placental development well guess what syncytin does not do viral mimicry syncytin doesn't need to have a gag and a pole uh to do its job like syncytin could just be a normal gene uh and the gag and pole is super degraded so it wouldn't even act as viral mimicry if it happened or if it was uh, translated. So, you know, the, the stuff doesn't add up with these ERVs, with this non-functional DNA. Like I said, all the examples that we have are like less than 1% of the total of the DNA that, that we need to be accounted for. Like, it doesn't make sense to say that all this stuff is functional, that it's all doing some sort of purpose and we just can't see it um the, the 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 arguments don't track we see that the way that these things are degraded right like the vast majority of of ervs they, they couldn't even function in viral mimicry if if they wanted to like they're so degraded to the point that some of them are only long terminal repeats and barely even uh, recognizable ones at that like there's no open reading frame there's no way that these things if they were translated would 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 have any viral mimicry activity. Um, and the key here is that the way that these things are degraded shares a homology across species 
in the exact same order that evolution would predict based on these evolutionary trees. Um, so really the DNA sequence homology, both in functional and non-functional genes, uh, verifies universal common ancestry. Um, and yeah, that's really it. I mean, if, if I could have a response about the whole goldfish being more similar to a human than a shark, even though goldfish and sharks are both fish, um, to me, that very clearly shows that the common design uh, excuse for why we see these nested hierarchical homologous sequences clearly shows that the common design does not make predictions that we see, then that evolution does. So thank you. All right, Grayson, you have one more minute. You sure? Want to hand it up? Um, yeah, I will. I've been meaning to make a YouTube channel. I haven't made one yet for anyone in the audience. I'm still trying to think of a name. Um, since Kent asked me if I was related to corn, I was thinking of any corn-based names. I saw lots of people calling me Cornball or Cornholio in the comments. So if you have any suggestions for a name that you think would be good for my channel, um, leave them in the comments for me. I'll look them over. Let's say you're going to leave yourself wide open to a lot of corny jokes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Donnie, I'm going to give you five minutes on your first word. All right, I'm going to do one, another um, <clears throat> one breath. Great debate. You know, it's a great debate when I think I lost my voice. So, okay, here we go. Share. Start the timer. And, okay, which point do I start on? And, okay. So, firstly, the evolutionary community, they have a very unsophisticated view of the genome, okay? Because... What we're doing as creationists is we're predicting that the vast majority of this genome activity is functional, not just spurious, not just noise. And I believe there's good reasons to believe so. I'm not going to reiterate those. I've already spent a lot of time discussing why. But we're confident enough to put predictions on paper, but also understand just how complex the developmental process is. During that nine months, notice this on the slide, the number of possible scenarios in which a DNA sequence might plausibly function is now proving to be enormous. In the short nine month window of time that represents human embryonic development, a single cell turns into a fully formed baby that contains hundreds of cell types that must execute an unimaginable number of cellular tasks. So when we actually consider the dynamic use of DNA sequences during these processes in the embryo, during developmental, um, during the developmental process, we can easily see and predict that the, uh, a lot of the uh, functions in, in these non-coding regions of the genome, they are involved in, uh, in the embryo. Okay, again, low-level transcription argument doesn't work. A lot of non-coding RNA genes like pseudogenes, for example, but also with uh, the ERV elements, uh, they're only active or functional under certain conditions. Okay, we've already done knockout experiments where we've demonstrated that these long non-coding RNA genes, they've been uh, knocked out in mice. The result has been lethal. They've been linked with different types of diseases and cancers. This means these functional DNA units are crucial to health. The DDX11L2 gene, he's still saying that they've looked, they've already looked for it. Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins is a PhD geneticist. He ran his own genome research center or lab um, for years and years. Okay, he's known what he's doing. He's addressed the critics here. This gene is situated in a region of many other important genes. It exists in a gene-rich a gene area of the genome. And apparently, 
many, if not all, of the thousands of genes surrounding the DDX11L2 gene are not found in the chimpanzee. That's why evolutionists, they've attempted to argue that all of the genes got to where they are by moving from other areas of the human uh, genome. Also, I didn't even get a chance to, and hopefully we'll, we'll talk about this next time, is we'll definitely debate the uh, chromosome two fusion, but also the Y chromosome dissimilarity. I got a chart here that shows for a fact, okay, I've got all the sources here. So not only do we have low variation and fast mutation rates in the Y chromosome, the mitochondrial DNA, that's what we debated for the first, what, 45 minutes. And again, the, the most parsimonious explanation, I believe the audience can see it, is the reason why we have low variation in these DNA compartments, the mutation rate is high, is because the Y chromosome and the mitochondrial DNA are young. You could take every single Y chromosome on the planet, male Y chromosome, there's incredibly low variation and they go back to one single Y chromosomal ancestor in the not so distant past. So why is there incredibly low variation in the Y chromosome? But then when you compare it to the chimpanzee Y chromosome, it's only about 35% the same when you consider overall gene content, architecture, size differences. Notice the human Y and the chimpanzee Y, it's half the size, it's completely different. And so that breaks their nested hierarchy. Okay, there's all types of discrepancies in their hierarchy. His question, why is a goldfish more similar to a human than a goldfish is to a shark? I don't know, according to their nested hierarchy, a fish and a shark, a uh, fish is a shark, but a goldfish and a shark, you'd think that they would be more similar. Okay, there's, there's a general hierarchy where humans and chimpanzees are more alike in terms of anatomy and morphology, physiology and genetics than let's say a human and a whale. But you also have what's called incomplete lineage sorting. You have orphan genes, these taxonomically restricted and essential genes that essentially demonstrate the inconsistency. They have no consistent hierarchy. There's no consistent hierarchy in the Y chromosomes. You've got the human Y and the gorilla Y. Notice the gorilla Y over here. They're more similar than the human and the chimpanzee. That breaks the, the hierarchy. You've got convergent evolution. Every time convergent evolution is invoked, that is an admittance into the lack of uniqueness of the universal phylogenetic tree. So yeah, in general, there's a hierarchy. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Your humans are more similar to you know your primates than humans would be to fish. But then you have anomalies. Like, for example, his question, why is a goldfish more similar to a human than it is to a, a shark? Okay, how do you explain the orphan genes? How do you explain all these examples of convergent evolution? And why is there no uh, consistent hierarchy in Y chromosomes in the great ape family? So that's exactly five minutes and I'll yield. All right. Um, so, so Donnie, did you say you wanted to take another minute or two break? Are we good? You guys want to dive right into these questions? What I'll do is I see the questions here. Let me organize them. We'll do, I guess, our 25 minutes of questions. I'm going to go fill up my water and we'll be good for the 25 minutes. So appreciate the patience getting over this sinus infection. So excellent debate. Lots of great points. Grayson and I, we're definitely going to do a round three. So uh, should we start with a question for me while you're filling up your water? No, because it might be a question I want to respond to. So Sam, the world... Uh, famous, the award-winning moderator. Show You're going to make me sing, brother. aren't you? You look good, yes. All right. Yes. Plug, sing plug a Christmas marriage. tune, Frosty oh, the leave Snowman. It, leave it back so I can see Grayson. I'll, we'll just chat with Grayson for a okay. minute, if you don't mind. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so what what would you do on this? Well, hold on. First, I want to um, I want to personally compliment you that you've, you've given a really decent and um, a higher quality debate than a lot of people that come on here and 
you know, pivot to rhetoric and ultimately just attack God. And you haven't done that. And so I, I appreciate that. I think well, hey, that, I appreciate the compliment, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, seriously. I mean, obviously, these this debate topic has implications and it's those implications that people are. Um, it seems like the majority of the people that come here, they're offended by what the creation model represents. And so that's what they want to attack at the end of the day and so um and you haven't done that so i'm much more interested on uh discussing like the ideas um and personally i don't really see um like i'm not a christian but i don't really see a conflict between like the evolution model and like a belief in god i don't i don't think it you know you, you can believe in both yeah i mean we we would say that it might not be a salvational issue i mean there's there's um there's theologians that have, you know, multiple earned PhDs that, um, and they, they hold to evolution. And so they, they wouldn't say that it's, you know, incompatible, but that's, you know, yeah. So anyway, it looks like Donnie's back. So yeah, we'll just jump right into the questions. <clears throat> All right. So I haven't seen any of these, I guess I'm starting right at the beginning. Um, is this the, the top creationist crybaby? Yeah, that's just the order they came in. Okay. So. And these are super chats too, right? Uh, no, there hasn't really been, or at least I haven't seen them from the my StreamYard view uh, super chats. I, I think I've seen a couple. Um, well, but, then whatever. I fully apologize if I've missed those super chats. Actually, I can see one right there. Yeah, so we have one right there from Samar Farsum. Do you see it? I saw one from Pseudonym earlier, but I didn't read what it was. I, I've seen a, a couple of them trickle through, but... I, I, I think we'll be able... I'm looking at them on the side. We should be able to get to all of them. So we'll just start at the beginning, okay. regardless of a super chat or not. Work our way, our way through. So Sam, go ahead, brother. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I just want to say, if anyone sent in a super chat and it missed it, that's on me. I dropped the ball and I, I fully apologize for um, for doing that. So... Yeah, so for the first question is from the creationist crybaby. And he says, SFT, how do you explain that all humans, chimp, mice, rats possess ERV1, but not the primate-specific ERV3, 4, or 5 insertions? Okay, so let's work through this. So, <clears throat> and I saw Samir says, uh, shorter answer so we get through more. Yeah, so let's make these technical uh, questions. We could do a whole debate on ERVs. I wrote a whole book on it. So how do you explain that all humans, chimps, mice, and rats possess ERV1, but the primate-specific ERV3, four or five insertions? Okay, so firstly, according to the separate ancestry model, we would say that humans, chimps, and we've already, I think, demonstrated a number of ways why humans and chimps aren't related. And so if human and chimps aren't related, then they're definitely not related to mice and rats. Okay. And then when it comes to the mice and rats, you know, we can look to uh, orphan genes, molecular clocks, DNA function. We can determine if mice and rats are related. Maybe that's an open question. Okay. So why is there essentially a difference in, in the ERVs? Why don't they all have the exact same variation? of the ERVs? Well, we would say that um, DNA differences are not necessarily the result of mutations. And so they may just reflect the overall uh, differences in function or even the way that these ERVs are used within, let's say, humans, chimpanzees, mice, and rats, okay? So we would still predict some kind of function. Now, as um, 
So it could be just a difference in the overall function between humans, chimps, mice, and rats. Okay, so I wouldn't expect, expect, you know, but see where they're seeing a variation, they could be assuming that that's a mutation when actually it could be a created difference. Okay, because remember the evolutionist is assuming all DNA differences are the result of creation. But the one thing that I want to say is, and it kind of branches off something that Grayson said in his uh, closing statement, is a lot of your ERV elements, they're not your full LTR, gag, pole, ENV, okay? Those are essentially what are involved in regulating genes, determining cell types, the placenta, the syncytin element of it is necessary for placental development. So I don't understand why we would say that's that's not needed, okay? But, uh, you know, antiviral protectors. But then you have a lot of just solo LTRs what they say are degenerated ERVs. They're assuming they're degenerated ERVs because I could go through paper after paper. I've done hours and hours worth of presentations on this topic. And they're now showing that these LTR, these solo LTRs, they are simply just a reflection of functional stretches of DNA. And so they have their own function. And so it's an assumption to say that they're degenerated ERVs. So that's my answer. Um, it's the type of question where I would need to be face to face with creationist crybaby. And I'd really have to cross examine uh, good old crybaby here and, and get some more details on this. But that's how I'd answer it. So go ahead. Uh, yeah, I would answer uh, nut up or shut up. Show me the functions of the ERV three, four and five uh, and what those functions are in in uh, primates. Um, since I'm not aware of any of those being demonstrated as having functions, then, you know, that's the end of the story for me. I got to see the evidence. Show me the function. Um, and then for the papers that you did cite, still less than 1% of the total. Uh, all those LTRs, uh, all the long non-coding RNAs, all the ERVs that have function are less than 1% of the total that we find. So 99%, no function at all that we've demonstrated. We don't know. For 99% of them. So yeah, I'm I'm perfectly happy admitting that, you know, less than 1% of all of these have function. Syncytin is functional. I'm not saying it's not functional. I'm saying that it doesn't need the gag and the pull and the LTR for its function. That's what I'm that's what I'm arguing. It does the syncytin ERV does not do viral mimicry. The syncytin is the area of the function. And the syncytin could literally just be a gene. It doesn't need gag, pole, LTR. It doesn't need to look like an ERV at all. It could just totally be, be a regular gene and have the same functionality. So, Okay. So I guess question was for me. I'll respond. Yeah, because <laughs> the ERVs that are specifically involved in embryonic development versus the ones that are, let's say, specifically involved in fighting off exogenous retroviruses or even safeguarding during embryological development, safeguarding our bodies against microbes and viruses. Okay, yeah, the syncytin may be necessary for embryological development, but then your GAG, poll, ENV, and LTRs in their complete, completeness are necessary for viral mimicry and fighting off viruses. So again, I would say, show me, since you're saying show me the functions in these specific ERVs, firstly, in the 60 to 80% genome-wide activity, okay, lies pseudogenes, ERVs, ALU elements, okay, so in those regions that are active, comprise these DNA elements that we have. It's not just one or two functions. It's function after, fu I mean, no, notice this, paper after paper, our, our results suggest function in early uh, mouse development. <laughs> in the lab, 
Okay, they have a mouse, it's developing. They snip out one of its retrotransposons, a certain class of retrotransposon. It's developing, you snip it out, then it dies. It's literally, its development requires, look at this. I could do an entire two hour presentation on the um, functional nature of these. What is this? ERVs function in, these are herbs, human specific, cell differentiation and regulation of gene expression. <laughs> Okay, here's this. so you know he's talking a big game. He's posturing. This function alone destroys your whole position. Show me an ERV or an exogenous retrovirus going from whatever function they have in being an exogenous retrovirus or a dead virus. Okay, once it gets passed on, it becomes an endogenous retrovirus. So I'll say what I keep saying. Show me a non-functional endogenous retrovirus going from non-functional to something as incredibly as important. In, uh, in the placenta, notice what this says, of a mammalian ancestor. So apparently they're saying if the accidental infection of a mammalian ancestor by an exogenous retrovirus had never occurred, the placenta and the mammals that produce it, including humans, would have never existed. I like to exist. Our award-winning uh, host likes to exist, Sam. You like to exist, Grayson. Apparently, if we don't have these ERVs, we can't exist. So I'm gonna let him answer. Yeah, I, really, I really no, do. It, well, no, I'm gonna ask my question. Show me a paper right now that shows a function like this, where without it, we can't exist. Show the evolution of, of that function. Go ahead. Pull yeah, it up. Okay. Give me the Perfect. name. You ask this question all the time. I know this yeah, is not the format where I get to respond to this, but because you ask us all the time, I really Just want to address the paper. it. Just show me the paper. I really want to address it. Go. You never have an ERV go from non-function to function because they don't start at That's why I said it's original function. Either original function or non-function. Show me an ERV or an exogenous retrovirus yeah. gaining the function that is that makes uh, us and our existence okay. necessary yeah. in the embryo. So, Pull up the, what's the title of the paper? Quit dodging. So what's the paper Every title? single retrovirus does viral mimicry, right? Like it does, it, it Okay, so you don't have a paper, viruses. thank you. Thank you, you don't have a paper, you're just rambling. You no, don't have I'm a paper that shows an exogenous retrovirus integrating into the genome, being passed on, through the germ cell lines and then gaining or altering its pre-existing ability to become necessary in the embryo. Do you have that paper? Yes or no? I'm holding your feet to the fire. <laughs> Look. Yes or no? Yes or no? Yeah, I mean just to be just to be and clear, it's a basic and question. Fair, it's just the question is whether or not you have a paper um I'm yeah, not, okay. I mean, we're just going to move through. I'm the saying question. that no paper will demonstrate that because yeah, you exactly. don't start exactly because your position's false. So I want the audience to know can I finish? Because you don't start at non-functional. That's why you're never going to find something going that's from non-functional. That's why I said altering its original function then. So either it's a dead virus, it's non-functional. How does it go from that dead state to a state where it has function and determining it's never in a dead state. acting as an antiviral response? Are you kidding me? The whole point of an endogenous retrovirus being fixed in the population is that mutations are supposed to kill that which it was in order that it's no longer harmful yeah. and then it can actually be passed on. Well, so you don't me... know. You don't know what you're talking about on endogenous retroviruses. No, and do... you just admitted you don't have a paper, Grayson. Look, because lost. all retroviruses that incorporate into the genome prevent other virus infunctions. They're I'm already about doing embryological the job development. Mimic. Can I finish my sentence? Hold on. No, because this is my question and I'm asking you a question. And you've already failed. We don't need to hear your rambles. You've already rambled for six, seven, eight minutes at a time. You don't have a paper that shows a pre-existing endogenous retrovirus altering whatever its function is 
and becoming necessary for embryological development. Because you your have premise that paper. Is flawed. No, no, no. The premise isn't flawed. Your position is flawed. <laughs> you don't have a paper. And you guys have been saying for the last three years that you'll give me a paper. And then a PhD virologist puts out a video six months ago, Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal, admitting that a paper like that doesn't exist. Or other evolutionists say, well, it just takes too long for that to happen. Now and you're saying premise. the premise is false. You guys don't know how to come to an actual uh, agreement on this, <laughs> Grayson. So, Your premise is false. Yeah, yeah, good one. Okay, so you don't have a paper. Makes Sinciton. Sinciton didn't change. The virus that infected That's your story. us could already I get make you believe that. I get you believe that. Give us a paper. Man up. Quit posturing. Post the paper in the chat. Send it after that paper I showed you says without that endogenous retrovirus, we wouldn't exist. Mammals wouldn't exist. You wouldn't exist. And you don't know how to show us how that's possible. No, I'm agreeing that that's the case. I'm agreeing Sinciton and the ERV is necessary. I 100% agree with that paper. We can just go ahead and move on because this is like the first or second. This is the first question still. <laughs> and we've well, I get the last word, so I'm just going to say the audience has seen you don't have a paper. And you guys will never get a paper. So keep posturing on ERVs. But it's like asking for a paper if proving that red equals purple. No. All right. Just for anyone who's tuned in or isn't familiar with the way that the question or answer goes, not not you, Grace. You know how this works. Um, whoever the question is directed to, they get the first and the last response. So that's the way that the question and answer works. So, um, yeah, that said, we can this move on. This isn't even so, a serious question. Do <laughs> so Doki asks, he says, stated clearly told me ERVs prove evolution. Just a fact. So why don't you just tap out, Donnie? Over. <laughs> I'll make this one quick. Just tell tell stated clearly to man up like Grayson does. Me and Grayson disagree. He comes on this channel, debates all the time. Hey, it gets heated, it gets passionate, but these are important topics. So stated clearly, I'll debate you anytime. Okay, next question. Um, yeah, well, did you want to touch on that, Grayson? <laughs> we just talked about ERVs. <laughs> All right, question for Donnie. Um, can they demonstrate the first blue-eyed man and woman, and why is blue eyes recessive? Well, again, they've they've come up with an approximate Y chromosome, Adam, but uh, to be specific and accurate, is Noah. They've come up with an approximate consensus sequence for um, for Noah, but they have, as we talked about in the first forty minutes of the discussion they have come up with a consensus sequence for Eve. So Dr. Rob Carter right here, I'm screen sharing him and Dr. Uh, John Sanford, <clears throat> mitochondrial diversity within a modern human population. So they've been able to come up with Eve sequence. They know the mutation rate roughly. They know uh, how many mutations uh, are, uh, differ between let's say Grayson and myself from the Eve sequence. So that means we are that removed from the Eve sequence. So basically, yeah, we, we can tell the original sequence. And when it comes to rare, uh, rare alleles, let's say blue eyes, we can determine what's created and what's the result of mutation based on allele frequencies. So if we have a, a rare allele like blue eyes, then we know that's the result of mutation because it only, it only exists in certain people. If it's common, everybody has it for the most part, non-disease causing and it's functional, that means it's created. So we can go about through linkage blocks as well.
there are still massive linkage blocks that exist within the human genome that have never experienced recombination or gene conversion. And so we can, we can go about as we are doing, uh, essentially uh, manifesting the original sequences of our first parents. So I don't know if that, can they determine the first blue-eyed man and woman? So that would be the result of a mutation. So sometime after, uh, after Babel, when people groups isolated themselves and became accumulate, uh, began accumulating <clears throat> their own mutations, I'm sure there's a way we can figure that out. We, we, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think it's a pre-existing allele that was created. I think it's the result of mutation. And so, because it's isolated. Um, okay, go ahead. I think we already touched on most of this stuff in the debate. So, I mean, people can Google it. We have an idea of where blue eyes uh, arose in the Central Asian steppe like 20,000 years ago or something. So you can go Google it. I don't think that it's really worth repeating here. We could just go to the next question. All right. Next question. 99% um, of mutations or yeah, mutations are lost and there have been enough. Has there been? Hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. If 99% of mutations are lost, have there been enough generations to account for the differences between humans and other apes? Yes. Uh, is that Grayson's specific question? If 99% of mutations are lost, have there been enough generations to account for all the differences between humans and other apes? So, you know, there, there is a problem called the waiting time problem. And although a lot of evolutionists are going to posture and they're going to say that it's been solved, but the fact is it, it hasn't been solved. And it's a paper that's been published by Dr. John Sanford, again, in a uh, secular journal. And it's been read by 10,000 scientists at least. And it's, it's rock solid. And your, um, your evolutionists are really struggling to explain how so many beneficial mutations can become fixated in just 7 million years. It, it also applies to the Y chromosome because there's these massive differences that the evolutionists have to explain in just roughly 7 million years, how you can go from Y chromosomes that are, you know, 35% different. But even if you were to go with the 99% number, okay, you would have, um, you would have, I think it's 10 million differences. I'm not, it, it depends what you're looking. If you're just looking at SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, then, you know, you can get from that 97 to 99% similarity between humans and, and chimpanzees. But if you were to start looking at the whole chunks of DNA that are not found in either species and then include the single letter differences, okay, then you're looking at uh, less, less than that. But either way, even if it's 97 to 99% similar, uh, Dr. Sanford published a paper, Waiting Time Problem, that it's difficult to explain how all of those differences can can essentially become fixed, become stuck in place. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I just say that you can't account for this. Like Sanford's numbers are wrong. There's not 30 million differences that we have to account for. Um, yeah, I mean, just look at the math. Uh, Haldane's Dilemma. Anyone can read about this. Sex, genetic drift, and purifying selection totally answer it. 
So have you read this paper that again, PubMed, not a creationist organization. See, see, it's just a hand wave away. This is published in a secular journal, Dr. John Sanford. The way they, they love to say, oh, Dr. Sanford never published. In, already I've shown you at least three just in this debate that have been published in secular literature, the waiting time problem in a model hominin population. The methods, the results. Um, yeah, have you read the response papers to that? No, th th that's my question to you. Where in the secular literature has this paper been? I'm not talking about Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal YouTube video or some angry evolutionist blogger. Where in the secular journals have we seen a response to this? Scroll down to where the paper is cited. You have response paper. Where's the response paper? Look at who's citing the paper. Google Scholar will tell you, but you can look at the response papers of who's written a response to this. You'll it hasn't. The response. It hasn't been refuted. Well, we can move on to another question, but I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, but you're just hand, you're just hand waving everything away. Biologically realistic numerical simulations revealed that a population. You know, I have a, I have a friend, a good friend, who's ran his own. Hundreds of numerical simulations you're using Mendel's accountant. They use bio. Look at this. This is in a secular journal. Biologically realistic numerical simulations reveal that a population of this type required inordinately long waiting times to establish even the shortest nucleotide strings. To establish a string of just two requires on average 84 million years. Yeah. So in th their model, they're assuming uh, a serial, like this mutation has to happen first, then this mutation, then this mutation. But in real life, these things are parallel. The Like you're, de you're deriving multiple- Okay, so uh, where's the peer-reviewed paper? Where's the peer-reviewed paper that invokes the same arguments you're using? Grayson, why don't you, uh, why don't you go publish a response to this instead of just hand-waving it away? This is published in a secular journal. Do you see? PubMed, National Library of Medicine, National Center of... This hasn't been refuted. There's been a couple angry evolutionist bloggers. Why don't they go publish in a respected journal? Why don't they go publish a response to this? There's been no response. We'll just see if there's response away. papers. I'll Google it after this and I'll just look at who's citing it. I'll look at the response papers. And they even uh, look to recombination in this paper too. Dr. Dan did a video. Oh, they ignore recombination. I literally took the, the excerpt from the paper where they talk about recombination. No, it hasn't been addressed. And you need you need to update yourself on this stuff, Grayson. You need to, I want you to read that paper. I also want you to read the paper here titled Mitochondrial Diversity Within Modern Human Populations. These PhD young earth creationists, they are publishing in these peer-reviewed journals, and there's been no sufficient response. So, anyways, okay, let's move on here. Um Okay, so next one. There we go. Yeah, so this question's for you, Donnie. The question is, in the context of uh, mutation accumulation with the rust on the car and an analogy, why doesn't a perfect creator remove the rust? He will. That's the whole point of salvation. Get born again, pass from death unto life, regenerated, justified, predestined for glorification. You know, you're, the, the redemption of our bodies. We're going to get a new body. There's going to be a new heaven, new earth. So he will remove the rust. God created a perfect world. We messed it up. Because of the fall, mutations, deleterious mutations were introduced into living creatures. And um, 
this is what I want to say. I'll make it really quick. So there's just so much to go over that like I've still got hundreds of slides I wanted to go over. So notice this. The biblical account of the patriarchs and their ages pre and post flood reveals classic genetic degeneration within humanity, starting with Adam and Eve. When all the relevant data are plotted, all these populations show a classical decay curve that approaches zero. Notice this. So you have a perfect genome, Adam and Eve created with pre-existing heterozygosity, no mutations. After creation, few mutations accumulate. After the flood, a lot of mutations accumulate. Notice, classic decay curve. Those that say, oh, this is just, you know, this is just coincidental. Basically, it has one, a less than one chance in a quadrillion of being co coincidental. To accuse the biblical patriarchs and the authors of fabricating this is to say that they had advanced knowledge in biology, decay curves, and mathematics thousands of years ago. So yeah, God will deal with the rust. We've been decaying here since creation. You see the decay curve from mutation accumulation. Plots out perfectly, perfectly consistent. And one day there'll be a new heaven and new earth. So good question. I yield. Grayson? I don't really have anything to comment on the Bible, so. All right. Oh. <laughs> keep thinking of them uh yep. <laughs> you've got the questions okay so next one right. um okay here we and go so, um yeah so samara he did uh send a super chat question too and i wasn't able to copy it so hopefully you can go back not that far and find that <clears throat> okay so the question is uh i believe this is for you grayson if DNA and RNA is the code to build life and it cannot survive without special conditions being met outside of the cell, then how did it not disintegrate before it formed? All right. So I guess this, is like an, this is like an abiogenesis kind of question. She's talking about like the origin of DNA and RNA. Uh, so it's an open question in science. I wouldn't say that we know the answer for sure. Me personally, I like the amyloid world hypothesis where the, before you have DNA and RNA, you have amyloid, uh, which basically forms scaffolds that uh, can be used to create and catalyze the DNA and RNA reactions. Um, and if those things are contained within like a lipid membrane, which lipid bilayers naturally form, I mean, this is just uh, intro to chemistry stuff. Um, that would, I mean, that would essentially ensure that it would have a homochiral creation and would not degenerate. So, you know, there are lots of theories in origin of life research that explain these things. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a question on abiogenesis. Um, <clears throat> we could basically do a whole debate on that. There are multiple hypotheses and people, advocates in the world of abiogenesis they essentially critique each other. You know, they all find what they believe are unsolvable problems, whether it's metabolism first, RNA world. Well, I mean, RNA world, we know that RNA is more unstable than DNA. And what's interesting is in our DNA, every single day, there's, there's at least a million DNA breaks. But these are fixed by these DNA repair systems in the cell. Okay, so here's one question I'd, ha I'd ask. And then um, Grayson gets the last word on this, so maybe you can answer it. So RNA, it's less stable than DNA, right? 
But DNA requires many amazing DNA repair systems in order to survive over time. With that being the case, how could something like the RNA world be, be possible? since we have all these chicken and egg problems. I think there's major problems for all of your abiogenesis um, hypotheses, even if it's metabolism first. Go ahead, Grayson can have the last word. Yeah, well, uh, like I, I don't really support the RNA world hypothesis. So um, if you're just asking like, how did uh, these uh, DNA systems exist before there were DNA repair mechanisms, I would probably would just answer that a lot of them did get degraded. Um, you know, it was a smaller genome than we would have now. You know, the less complex organism doesn't even have a lot of organelles. Uh, so it's not really a big leap to say that, you know, a lot of them did get degraded and did die. They're just, you know, you have to have a population that's big enough of these things replicating to where, you know, the you know, you have enough that make it through that don't have deleterious mutations. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Go, go ahead. Uh, Sam, you get asked. Oh, okay. Question. So if we derive, if, if we, yeah, derive from monkeys through mutations, how come there's still monkeys? Why don't the rest <laughs> mutate into humans or something else? Okay, so this is a pretty common misconception with evolution. I will just say that the rest did mutate into something else. They're called chimpanzees, you know? It's not like humans evolved from chimpanzees. Both humans and chimpanzees evolved from a shared ape ancestor. So the ancestor did continue to evolve into chimpanzees, into bonobos, into humans. You know, it's not like the evolution just stopped. And the easy thing to point to is, uh, you know, we know dogs came from wolves, yet there are still wolves. So it's not exactly logical to think that just because something derived from a subpopulation of something else, it's like, you know, Americans, uh, or maybe America is not a great example. Let's do Canadians, because, you know, Donnie, represent. So Canadians <laughs> largely come from France, and yet there are still French people. So how does that make sense? You know, it's not a logical kind of assumption to make that we wouldn't have any of the ancestral population just because we have more derived versions from a subpopulation of those ancestors. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so if we derive from monkeys through mutations, how come there's still monkeys? Well, you know, in order to not straw man the evolutionary model, they would say that humans and chimpanzees... Um, go back to a common ancestor. So we share a common ancestor. So in the distant past, you have a common ancestor between humans and chimpanzees. There's a split where you have humans go one way, the chimpanzee line goes the other. Okay. So essentially, you know, according to the evolutionary model, you could have chimpanzees and humans coexisting kind of like, you know, one could say your domestic dogs ultimately came from a wolf type creature. And yet we have wolves li living with domestic dogs. So you could coexist with, with your ancestors. Um, but then he says, why didn't the rest mutate into humans or something? Um, different environmental pressures, different. It's a, it's a totally different split. And so one line is going into one environment, the other one, they're going to experience different mutational effects. You know, I think there's better ways to refute evolution than posing this question. 
you know, what, what, so apparently saying that common ancestor split, why didn't both lines evolve into humans? You know, different selection press, pressures, mutational events. Um, so I, I don't, if we were to steel man the evolutionary model, you know, they have a way to say that chimps and humans could coexist. But Grayson, a question for you. You can have the last word. I don't need it. We both said the same thing. Yeah, it's all good. We can move on. <laughs> okay. Um, here we go. A couple super chats, it looks like. There you go. Thank you, Samir, for the support. Oh, okay. There it is. So 0.1 DNA difference makes up about 8 billion different humans, unless you're a 100% sure about mutations, you could be as far from the truth as many me from Shaq. Okay. I, I don't really, you know, I mean, I agree, you know, that there's very little genetic differences between, I don't know about many me, but between myself and Shaq, between myself and Donnie, you know, so I, I mean, I agree. So 0.1% DNA makes up 8 million. So um, what I would say is real quick, share screen. Here's another um, topic I'd love to get into with Grayson. Um, Grayson, we had a good cordial debate, got a little heated there on the ERV topic, so I do apologize. I don't want to ruin a good professional debate. So I had a lot of fun discussing these topics with you. And so I think for a third interaction, I'd like to cover um, just how small a difference could be in terms of the overall function. So I'm trying to find it here, right here. So I've got paper after paper here showing how even in your similar sequences between humans and chimpanzees, we actually have major differences in how those genes are expressed, how those genes are regulated. We have differences in terms of alternative splicing. Notice this, in total, uh, 1,526 exons and exon sets from 12, 36 genes showed significant splicing differences among primates. More than 60% of these differences represent constitutive to alternative exon transitions, while an additional 25% represent changes in exon inclusion frequency. Epigenetic differences, notice this, studies show that the epigenetic differences in humans and chimpanzee brain genes are far too great to indicate an evolutionary connection, but rather reflect the creature kind distinctiveness creatures would, uh, creatures would predict. So basically you have the human chimp ancestor like we're talking about, and then you have a, a divergence event. You have a split. One line goes this way, the other line goes that way. So you're gonna have to say in that time frame, evolutionists are gonna have to show us how these epigenetic differences came about, these gene expression differences, the Y chromosomal uh, differences, differences in alternative splicing. So again, the whole point I'm trying to make here is even in very similar sequences or identical sequences, you actually find vast differences in how those sequences or genes are expressed. And I think that's a problem for the evolutionary model. So I yield. Okay, well, I don't think it's a problem. Uh, I, I mean, I would agree with you that the percent difference in genomes is going to be less than the percent difference in epigenomes. That's going to be true on um, comparing myself to you, myself to Shaq, uh, humans to chimpanzees. That's going to be true in every single comparison we make. Uh, we're always going to see more of a difference in the epigenome than we're going to see in the genome. 
So I totally agree with that. Uh, I don't think it's unexplainable by evolution though. So, okay. So next question, here we go. Okay. Swimmers develop broad shoulders and bigger chest cavities. Do you consider this to be a mutation or a dormant? What is that? Predisposition active at need? Um, so genetic, maybe I wouldn't, I mean, if it is a result of a mutation that causes those phenotypes, there would be, but generally speaking, I would not say that that's the result of a mutation. That's a result of, you know, your genes. I naturally have pretty broad shoulders. Some people have slopey shoulders. You know, some people have a natural swimmer's physique. Some people have a natural sumo wrestler physique. I don't know. Uh, these are just, you know, variations in genetics uh of course you're saying are you talking about predispositions you know this can be impacted by the environment and uh nurture rather than nature i mean it's multifactorial um i'm not i wouldn't say that it's a result of them having a mutation just because they have you know genotypic and phenotypic variation within a species um i would say yeah, a lot of the variations, the adaptation we see goes back to just what we kind of talked about for a little bit in the last question is epigenetics. I mean, we have epigenetics, which has everything to do with um, adaptability. Okay, so as, as biological organisms, including humans, as we navigate through different environments, genes within the organisms can be turned on or turned off. So there's the pre-existing ability to adapt, to change, to vary. So it's not the result of, you know, beneficial mutations, an increase in phenotypic complexity, the addition of novel body plans. No, this is, these are adaptations and variations that are the result of the pre-existing ability to adapt and to change. And it's oftentimes dependent upon what's necessary to survive the, the, the environment. And what's interesting is epigenetics. Here's the last thing I'll say. Epigenetics result in a change within the activity of the genes. Okay. And, but it doesn't actually change the, you know, the sequence itself. Um, and it essentially means just a level of change above or beyond the DNA. And so you can basically just adapt because of the environment. It's like the environment's dictating what um you know your cells they're they're tagged with these these certain chemicals that can basically turn the gene on uh, switch it on in light of an environmental condition and there's so much interesting study right now going on regarding inheritance you know can some of these changes due to epigenetics be inherited stress the things we think about the things we eat the environmental toxins that may turn a gene on or off through uh, epigenetic means you know, I think they're in the infancy of studying it. You know, Grayson probably knows what I'm talking about, but that might actually be able to be inherited. You know, you could have um, your, your grandparents' epigenetic modifications manifesting in you. You know, it's a very interesting field for sure. Go ahead, Grayson, you get the last word. Well, thank you for explaining um, how we could get the epigenetic differences arising between chimpanzees and humans. I appreciate you making that argument for me. Thanks. <laughs> Okay. Um, we'll let you have that one since I was a little aggressive on the ERV question. So this has been fun. Let's move on. Um, all right. Pseudonym. He's got a long one here. So read if I'm right. living, you read it out. See if I can 
work through this. Okay, so <laughs> SFT, <laughs> considering both hominids and human share ERVs and similar genome sequences, how are they not related if fixed view is one inch, 10 millimeter? Like one in 10 million, I think. Oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay, one in 10 million coincidence, rather that evolutionary process is making sense and we're, and were ERVs are placed due to relations. Okay, so both <laughs> hominids and humans share ERVs in similar genome sequences. Yeah, if so, shares. So if uh, an ERV is involved in the placenta, embryological development, safeguarding the growing baby from pathogens and viruses and things like that. Well, you're going to have other creatures with those same functions and therefore they're going to share them due to common design. How are they not related if fixed view is one in 10 million and coincident? So um, when it comes to fixed, if you have ERVs, including the, the differences within them, if they're fixed within the entire population as in they're stuck in place, every single human has them. So let's say there's a certain ERV, every human has it and every chimpanzee has it and it's shared. Well, then our, we would predict as creationists, that's, um, I've got a, this whole model laid out in my ERV book. We'd predict that's created. It's stuck in place. Both organisms have it. It's functional in this. Or if we don't know the function, we can predict the function. Okay. But oftentimes you'll have lineage specific ERVs like herbs, right? Now, if every single human has those, again, created and functional, but you can have, you know, let's say an ERV that managed to, the, the exogenous retrovirus managed to infect in the right way, get passed on, became endogenous, but it didn't fix. Well, we'd predict that's the result of, of an actual exogenous retroviral infection that became endogenous because it's not fixed. Not every single uh, human has it. So let's see, rather that, rather that evolutionary processes make sense and where ERVs are placed due to relation. I'm not sure if I totally understand. No, I, what think, he's I think he's, I, it seems like he's asking like, like how he's saying that, you know, they're, the odds are pretty far out that it would be a coincidence the, that these ERVs are placed in the same location. In, right. Know, it, it, by design, yeah, it, Donnie's it, position uh, is that the ERVs are functional. So like the question isn't like, if the ERVs are functional, then the question is answered. Yeah, how do you explain were they they placed there, or was it a coincidence? If they're if it's if the one didn't derive from the other, right? If evolution, right. if it's not explained by evolution, would you explain well, that? Donnie's stance is that they're created elements of DNA function, so they're created there for a purpose. It like you know, if they're functional, they have to be there. That's why they're observed in those nested hierarchies. I mean, that's the argument. Right. So. Right. So if we so notice this, the hierarchy, the hierarchical distribution of life, these groups within groups pattern. So humans, chimpanzees, mice, these are all mammals. Then you get into lizards, salamander, fish. OK, so if we as humans share more with the chimpanzee than we do with the mouse, then we would say that's due to common design. We share more in overall anatomy, morphology with the chimpanzee than we do with the mouse. But yes, if they're all there, we're not saying that they were fixed there after creation within thousands of years. We're saying the ones that are fixed, the ones that all humans have, and let's say they even share them with chimpanzees or some with chimpanzees, then we would say they're there for a beneficial reason, a functional reason. Okay. And this comes down to the origin of RNA viruses in general. RNA viruses require a host to replicate. 
So what came first, the host or the RNA virus? It makes sense that all of these viral-like elements were created in the host, and there's been escapees, there's been you know harmful viruses that cross species, and because they're crossing into um, a host that's not its original, the, the host now doesn't know how to regulate the, the virus. And so it burns hot and fast and leads to disease. But we can actually trace back where that virus came from originally. Because a lot of these viruses, they only have a few genes. And the question is, where did they get those genes? So I think that brings us to a totally separate debate. What is the origin of RNA viruses and viral-like elements to begin with? Really quick. Yeah, go ahead. Can I ask you something about the nested hierarchies? I mean, what I was saying in my intro, like, why didn't? Like, if creationists in the creation model would expect to see nested hierarchies, why wasn't that prediction made until after Carolus Linnaeus observed them and then challenged all the creationists, somebody please explain this, and nobody could? Well, he never, um, Linnaeus never believed that humans and chimps were related. No, I, I'm not saying, he, he didn't say anything about evolution. This has nothing to do with evolution. It's just about the observed patterns of nested hierarchies among organisms. <clears throat> um, so that was not, it was not like, you know, there was 1700, 1600, I don't know, years of, <sighs> of Christianity reading the Bible. Nobody predicted that we would see these nested hierarchy patterns. And then the first person that discovered them, Carolus Linnaeus, father of taxonomy, he was a creationist. Nobody believed in evolution. He challenged the entire world. Somebody, please explain why we see these nested hierarchies. And nobody could explain it. Well, <laughs> there's been a lot of good intelligent design advocates, creationists that have explained it. Before Linnaeus, there were people who have recognized the fact that we as humans share more with other creatures than we do with other. I mean, by definition, every creature you look at, th this is funny. This is the phylogeny challenge. I made this. So, you know, your evolutionists believe that this is how the, uh, the biological world, the patterns we see in it. Apparently, this is how it should be. Humans just separate from everything. And then everything else over here. But here's the thing. We're, we're made with the same building blocks, DNA, RNA, pro, uh, proteins. There's there, morphology, similar structures, similar systems in terms of biology. Of course, we're going to fit somewhere. By definition, humans have to be more similar to some creatures than others. And so if you see here in terms of the, the hierarchy, humans, we're grouped with primates. Primates and humans are grouped with mammals. Humans, primates, and mammals are grouped with vertebrates. But we as humans all share a lot more with each other than we do with chimpanzees. And yet humans and chimpanzees share more with each other than humans and whales. Okay, so yeah, there is this nested hierarchy, but all you gotta do is stand back and look at the organisms. It's not a surprise. People have pointed this out even before Linnaeus, that yeah, we share more with your primates than we would with your fish or your invertebrates like insects. But overall, I believe, and I've pointed this out many times, a good explanation as to why the created order is organized hierarchically is, is for discovery purposes. Okay, so God has designed the biological world in a way that allows us as humans to study this world and as a result make some amazing discoveries. Because if, if creation, the biological world, was not structured this way in this hierarchical pattern, discoveries in biology would not 
be as easy as it is way. This is an elegant design. This is a way where we can study, we can use mice, you know, for experiments as well, finding cures, just discovering things about the uh, biological world. It's great so, for discoverability. Go ahead. Yeah, if that's the case, then God would have made it to where we wouldn't have discovered evolution. Like, if ev evolution is obvious to most geneticists and biologists that look at these things, and if God was making this, like, he could have had a clear signal, you know, something that makes it, you know, if humans had 72 chromosomes instead of just, you know, a, a, a fusion, you know, if there was something that evolution could not explain in, in, in a human lineage, like saying like, oh, if we have 72 chromosomes, how the heck is evolution going to explain that? It can't. So there would be something, you know, if God is constructing these things for the purpose of, you know, human discovery, if he's thinking that far ahead, he would have had something that obviously disproves evolution to where it was so obvious that, you know, all the scientists would see it. Uh, when, did, know, when did Linnaeus live? I want to say the 1700s, but I know it was before uh, Charles Darwin, for sure. And when did the modern field of genetics come about? 1950s. <laughs> so how would Linnaeus have all the genetic data that we have now that he shows didn't. separate ancestry and universal common ancestry? So if he's, uh, he's begging for people at that time to show him, you know, what separates humans from chimpanzees. And the best evidence for that is DNA function, Y chromosomal. We've already debated this for three hours. So I'm not going to go over it again. I am arguing there's many lines of evidence that show that humans and chimps can't be related. Now you disagree and it's up to the, the audience to examine our arguments and, you know, how we responded to each other. But I would argue that, yeah, there's plenty of ways for us to tell that humans and chimpanzees aren't, aren't related. No way to account for these, these massive differences. So I guess um, all the biologists and geneticists are just too stupid to see. Well, it's not all. I've already showed you a number of papers from marine biologists, geneticists that are publishing in secular journals showing major problems in um, evolutionary theory and ancestry. Dr. Rob Carter, right here. We yeah, spent Rob Carter's not a trained in these areas, though. Isn't he like a geologist or something? Well, but so apparently he's not trained, according to you, but he, but he managed to publish a paper in nucleic acids research on mitochondrial diversity. Is, is, that, mm -hmm. your, <laughs> is that your position? I mean, what's I, his I, degree in? His degree is in marine biology, but he's also a trained geneticist because he's trained, from my understanding, on, or he's he's done genetics in his PhD here. Yeah, he and works for Stanford. Like I, I get Stanford, Stanford yeah. and Jensen. All I will give you that they are the only two I can think of out of how many geneticists in the world. But you know, right. well, do you, Dr. Do you, Rob Carter, do you want to keep doing Q and A, or should we move on to just like yeah? Well, no, I just want to explain. So Dr. Rob Carter, he did gene transplanting and fish for his, his dissertation. So he does have a lot of training in genetics. He knows his stuff. You know, he's, he's done a lot of work in terms of uh, mitochondrial DNA. He's come up with the, the consensus sequence of Eve, showing the low variation, the fast mutation rate. So, you know, it's just, and here's the thing. So not all biologists and geneticists are evolutionists, but if you actually were to just do a consensus of just people who believe whales and pine trees are related versus not related, there's more people that would reject evolution in the world.
So I I don't know why consensus is an argument. I don't. Right. And consensus among experts is. Important. Oh, experts. Okay. Well, again, I've already shown you a handful of experts that disagree. And I've and shown you that the consensus though. does I've not got... agree with them. Okay. All right. Let, let, let's do one more question because we've done a long Q&A. We're going on three and a half hours. So it's been a good debate. Um, okay. Go ahead, uh, <clears throat> Sam. We can make this the last question if you want, brother. Okay, so uh, does science support a first man and a woman that everyone came from? Or do they have multiple Adam and Eves popping up on different continents? Uh, whoa, weird questions. Uh, the answer to the first <laughs> one is no. The answer to the second one is also no. Uh, there were not just multiple first men and women popping up on different continents. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so science does not support a first man and a woman that everyone came from. Like, Y chromosome, Adam and uh, mitochondrial Eve are not that. Um, they're not the first man and woman, woman, according to the science, right? They change just about every generation is a different individual who is the Y chromosomal Adam and the mitochondrial Eve. They're not constant. Uh, in a few generations, it'll be a different people, like a different two individuals that uh, mathematically fit that description. Um I would just say that a common metaphor for this that is often used is language evolution. Like the evolution of French from Latin, there was no single original French speaker, right? You never have a non-French speaker give birth to a French speaker. That's not how languages change. It's the same with evolution, right? It's not a, you know, all of a sudden you have the first man and woman born from monkeys. Like that's patently ridiculous okay uh let me respond so <laughs> redefine living sitting back he's like oh here we go another 45 minutes <laughs> well we literally oh. debated this for the first 45 minutes of the debate so in a nutshell firstly i want to correct myself so i just double checked on creation.com corals genes in creation so dr rob carter his dissertation from my understanding the genetics of uh corals Here's this paper that I recommend, Mitochondrial Diversity, that we touched on in the discovery uh, the discussion, waiting time problem from Dr. Sanford. So anyways, was there a first man and first woman? The answer is yes, definitely. So that was my opening presentation, and we talked a lot about this in the discussion. So again, we have uh, Y chromosome phylogeny here, mitochondrial DNA. Um, Grayson had a problem with the the unrooted nature of it but again the unrooted trees give us a natural manifestation or reflection of the data the data is the same whether it's rooted or unrooted we've already got the mitochondrial eve consensus sequence right here we already know on average but we differ from the sequence at about 21 nucleotide sites um so Grayson needs to look into this. And the mutation rate's relatively high in the mitochondrial DNA between 0.1 and 0.5, but it's, it's a small chromosome. It's only about 16,000 letters. So wait a minute, we have explosive growth from a center point, okay? We don't exactly know where, where the ancestor is, the last common ancestor, because again, just take the HVR haplogroup. We have differing size branches. We have people in the same amount of time picking up more mutations than their cousins. That means the mutation rate is variable, but the mutation rate overall is fast. So even with his, I've got my notes here, his example earlier on the Romans, 
you have a you dig up a dead Roman, get his DNA, have two descendants today, and then compare the differences. Again, you're making assumptions that just aren't real. The mutation rates are variable. We see this reflection on the tree. I've got paper after paper that I've shown that demonstrates the um, reality of hypermutation and also regions within the genome that are more hypermutable. So yeah, you have low variation here. You have explosive growth from a center point. That's exactly what our model says. Adam and Eve are created. And then we have rapid and exponential growth. Then we have the flood. Then you have eight people, three reproducing couples, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their wives. We all come from them. Okay, so rapid and exponential population growth. That's what we see. Low variation, fast mutation rate, one woman. Right here, Y chromosome. Low variation, fast mutation rate, variable mutation rates as well, and explosive growth from a center point. I mean, there... <laughs> There's no better evidence. It's like if, if we all descended from two people, this is exactly what we'd expect to find. Evidence for one Y chromosomal ancestor, evidence for one mitochondrial DNA ancestor. What, and according to the evolutionist model, apparently from a population of males and females, there was a lucky father and a, and a lucky mother that you know they were the only ones that were able to pass on their genes. They looked to what's called, here's the last thing I'll say. They looked to what's called coalescence as a rescue device. But that assumes what's called random mating. No, when you have people isolated you know, in certain parts of the world, and historically we understand that people groups, they existed in tribes and they typically intermarried in tribes. So there's no real reason why we should expect one mitochondrial line, one Y chromosome line. There's every reason to expect that we'd have multiple lines and that we'd even share some with the, with the chimpanzee. But yet the mitochondrial DNA and the Y chromosome is massively different between humans and, y and uh, chimpanzees. Amazing evidence for the fact that we came from one man and one woman. And so I yield there. Yeah, so it's a mathematical certainty just from math and statistics that at any part of the genome that you look, you're going to find one individual, a most recent common ancestor for all the humans alive today that's going to have like you're going to trace the ancestry of that part of the genome to that person. You can do this for any section. You can do this for one base pair. You can do this for one gene. You can do this for any chromosome. It doesn't have to be mitochondrial. It doesn't have to be Y chromosome. You could do it for literally any portion of the gene. And you're going to get different individuals for every single time that you do that analysis. And if you do it in 100 years, you're going to get another different individuals because it varies from generation to generation. So this is a mathematical certainty. It's predicted. You can do it for every single part of the genome. Like, and even if we use Donnie's rates or Jensen's rates that they use for Y chromosome and mitochondrial, if we do that on a different chromosome, like let's do that on chromosome two. Let's see who our most recent, uh, you know, Adam and Eve were for, or just one individual for chromosome two. Guess what? It's more than 6,000 years ago, even by Jensen's own model. Looking at any other chromosome refutes it, but you don't even need to do that. Like I said, you could dig up any individual, any Roman individual, any individual from the past, from a known civilization where we know the dates, like ancient Rome, dig up any of those bodies, look at the DNA, and it easily debunks this, this whole thing. You could just look at how many mutations are present in that in ancient individual, what haplogroup they are, and it debunks this easily. Literally any ancient individual.
Well, and we have thousands of. So, <laughs> I mean this in the nicest way, Grayson, but it, it's like you didn't hear anything I just said, and the things that I said in the first forty-five minutes of the discussion. Your Roman example, the Canary Islands example, they don't work. We have variable mutation rates. It's right here on the tree. This is real-time data. This is worldwide. You're saying, oh, you could take one part of the genome here and you're going to find one last common ancestor. Part of the genome here, find one last common ancestor. Dude, this is worldwide. You can just get this yourself from the Thousand Genomes Project. If there are variable mutation rates, then you cannot calculate the 6,000 years to mitochondrial E. I never said I could. I never said I could. I said it's the pattern that matters. It's the fact that we have fast mutation rates. It's the fact that we have evidence for a rapidly growing population. Okay, I'm not saying I can locate exactly where Noah is. That's why I'm not rooting it. I am giving an unrooted representation of the empirical data, Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA. Just look at any haplogroup. Here's the most common haplogroup in Europe. Differing size, but these branches, reflection of mutations, all go back to a common ancestor. We have differing size branches, meaning you have more people in the same amount of time are picking up more mutations than other people. Mutation rates are variable. This paper here goes over a number of reasons why people can have germline hypermutation. This is today. I mean, just think of the um, harsh environmental conditions from thousands of years ago that could have really sped things up. But anyways, after creation, or I mean, after the flood, what we'd have with eight people and then a rapidly expanding population is we'd have what's called rapid fixation of new mutations. So you'd have a faster fixation rate because you have mutations popping up, but it's a small population. They're isolated basically until Babel, until they disperse. And so you have new, new um, mutations fixating, getting stuck in place, and then they spread out. Okay, so, so we've looked at Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA, and we're only separated by a few differences. We have evidence for a rapidly growing population. Mutation rates are variable. That's it. I mean, this destroys universal ancestry. This destroys the arguments against Adam and Eve. This is exactly what we would expect if there existed a literal Adam and Eve. And your arguments don't work because you're assuming too many things. You're assuming mutation rates aren't variable. Guarantee you're going to use a rooted tree, expecting to know where where that root is. So, so I don't think you're addressing my points. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. With the ancient DNA, right? We can calibrate from a Roman guy, and then we can go look at a different ancient person using the substitution rate that we derived from the Roman guy. Which right? paper? I'm just saying you can do this for any of them. <laughs> okay. The well, I get. I get your. I know your claims, your assertions. I don't want this to get heated again. So let me just ask really nicely. You're making a lot of claims, a lot of assertions. Cite the paper. Why have I cited a hundred papers in this debate? Where are your papers? I'm not screen your, sharing. I didn't print any papers. Well, what about in front of you? I've got like, look, I've got at least a dozen here in front of me. Here's one, here's one, here's one. Here, like, Where's the work you put into this? You're making a lot of assertions. You're making a lot of claims. Every single argument I've made over the last three and a half hours, I have backed up with the scientific literature. And all you're doing is hand-waving everything away. This is a very poor representation and defense of universal ancestry. So I think the audience can see that. And I think you can see that deep down inside. Don't make claims. Don't make assertions unless you can back them up. Show me your paper so about this Roman example. Where is it? What's the title DNA is available in databases 
from all the individuals, you know, or, you know, a lot of individuals are, are available. We can get their genomes from so that. Have, have you done it then? Or are you no. just saying that we could, have you done it? No, I haven't. <laughs> so, done it okay. Personally. So, so as of now, as per the debate, you have claims, assertions, and I could do this, but you haven't. Mm -hmm. Universal, you have not met your burden of proof tonight. I have backed everything up tonight over the last three and a half hours with visual representations in the term of, of, of uh, phylogenies. I've shown you dozens of papers. I've backed up everything. These no, are individuals. No, you haven't. You've, you've definitely have shown papers. I know that you're reading the papers, but they're not backing up what you're saying other than the creationist papers. And we can well, do this ourselves. Papers. We can go to an ancient DNA database. We can look at the individual. Have you we'll done see it? That have you, has it anybody done it? Genetic entropy <laughs> and it debunks the Adam and Eve okay. molecular. Okay, so that which we could do, but you haven't done, debunks genetic entropy. Is that your position? Yeah, anybody could do it. <laughs> okay, I, I think we're going to wrap it up here. You don't really got much more to offer. So let's hand it over to you. Yeah, you guys, that was that was an awesome debate. I wasn't about to step in there. I've just been enjoying it too much. So I want to thank everyone that stuck it out this whole time. Don't forget to hit that thumbs up. It really helps. Grayson, thanks. I mean, you've been great. You stayed here this whole time. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I mean, any quick closing comments from you guys? Uh, somebody in the chat came up with a name, uh, Cornhub which I thought was no, really funny. No. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, Grayson, Sam, thanks so much. Wild debate. We made it through. Um, moments of, of passion, but lots of moments where we got to make our points. Grayson got to make your points, got to engage each other. But an hour-long Q&A. Sam, great job moderating. Thanks. <laughs> and thanks for your patience with my excess water consumption tonight due to the <laughs> satisfaction I'm fighting. Grayson, uh, thanks for doing this. And to the audience, thank you for tuning in. And hopefully we'll have to do a, a, a round three sometime. So with that, standing for truth, redefine living, and Grayson are out.